0: going on guys Dustin with the LFG 1904 show reconstruction rescue is your best choice for flood restoration services in San Diego County with years of experience in the industry their dedicated team of project managers will work hand in hand with you from start to finish specializing in home insurance water damage claims they take on the headache of dealing with your insurance company so you don't have to call this number today for a free estimate 760-891-9919 once again that number is 760-891-9919 Eight nine one nine nine one nine, reconstruction rescue, y'all know the deal. Fucking burning daylight here. These guys are in for a fucking treat today. Yeah. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show, guys. Boy, oh boy, do we have a fucking banger for everybody today. We have none other than author. From Broken, right? Broken. C.M. Wolf, Charlie Wolf, and I'm gonna tell you guys right now. Uh, I just met her, and her story is absolutely insane. So we could we're, we could just start digging into it right away. But Charlie, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and uh, let us know where you're from?
1: Um, I feel like I should open it up the same way I do it means Hi, my name is Charlie, and I'm an addict. There you go. <laughs> um, I am from El Dorado Hills, California, um, and before that, it was pretty much like Rockland, so just Northern California.
0: Got it. How do you like that? How do you like living there?
1: Yeah. I miss it a lot, actually. Yeah. It's... Um, being in San Diego is very... Uh, <laughs> there's a lot of people, <laughs> Right. And there's a lot of uh, buildings I where I grew up. There is a lot of like oak preserves, um, just a lot of more nature, I guess you could say, and a lot less people. Um, uh, I, when I first started riding a bike um, after I got out of prison, I... Uh, I actually had to ask somebody what the rules were for riding a bike in the city because where I grew up, you just rode it, you know, on on the sidewalk. But I know that they have bike lanes here, and I've heard other drivers like cuss out the bike people, or when I'm on the sidewalk, people cuss out people on bikes on the sidewalk. So I'm like, is this a law? Should I be doing this? Am I going to piss somebody off? Like, what? Yeah, (laughs) people in San Diego don't
0: like they don't like bicyclists. (laughs) But there is a lot of places that you're, they made roads for bi- bicyclists now, mm-hmm. which is cool, you know? I mean, it, it's, I know a few people from, I'm a, from a little small town in San Diego, too, and there, I knew a few people that were hit by a bicycle. That's, a, that's just insane.
1: Yeah.
2: A few tweakers.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, that was another That's a mystery thing. guest
0: today, guys. Uh, we'll figure out, so you'll see if you can know who it is. So anyways, you wrote this book, right? So Broken, and where did you write this book?
1: In prison.
0: Wow. So before we get into all that, because that this is, I'm gonna have to <laughs> slow it down a little bit. Hold on. So let me just break it down for you guys real quick. So Charlie, um, at the age of 14, was incarcerated for murder. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you know what? I shouldn't even tell the story. It's your story. <laughs> Charlie, just go ahead and let's just let's just get right down to it. When did your disease start? When did, when, did, when did you notice a change in
1: your life? Um, honestly, I think the first time I ever really acted on my addiction didn't have anything to do with the substance. Um, the first time I tried to kill myself, I was 16. Or, not sorry, 16, 6. Um, and from that point forward, you know, self-mutilation was definitely... Like, if you want to talk about a first first love of mm. um, self-harm, that was it.
0: Wow. Six years old. Mm. And that's so true. We, we talk about this on the podcast all the time. Our addiction starts with our behaviors way before we pick up. Yeah. And so you recognize that at six. Huh? You wanted to kill yourself. What was the reasoning for that?
1: Um, at the time, I didn't realize it. Um, my mom started molesting me when I was about five or six that's the earliest memory that I have of it um and then shortly after was the first time uh, I was watching a CSI episode like the original one and there was this guy who um bit out his wrist because he didn't want to go to prison um and he died and I remember asking my mom how he did that and you know she told me oh you know bit open his wrist, but when I asked her where, she said on top instead of on bottom. I don't know if she had, you know, some kind of sense that I was asking because I might want to do it. Um, but to me, the just the concept of escape, because I didn't want to live my life anymore. I didn't want to be there anymore. So it just resonated with me really strongly and I started biting myself until I, you know, discovered razors. When I was, I think, 11. So.
3: Okay.
0: Where was your dad? Never met him. Never met him. So it was just you and your mom?
1: Yep. No siblings.
0: No siblings. I mean, thank God.
1: Yeah. I mean, I hate
0: to say that, but it's like, I just know your story and we're going to get into it. People will understand that soon enough, but man, I couldn't imagine, I mean, the things that you went through, but so six years old, you tried to commit suicide and how did you try to do that?
1: Biting out my wrist. Biting
0: out your wrist, Mm -hmm. but on top. Mm -hmm. So instead of going right to the main vein, you were just, okay.
1: Yeah, because. So it makes
0: sense. Maybe your mom didn't catch on to that.
1: Yeah, she. um, It's kind of weird because I know I had marks. um, And I was actually interviewed by a CPS worker when I was nine. And obviously at the time, I didn't realize that it was a behavior to hide. I didn't think I was going to get in trouble for it. It was just something that I did if I felt overwhelmed um, or I was having a panic attack. That's how I would calm myself back down. Um, And I did it when I was in a CPS uh, interview and she noted it, but, you know, nothing ever happened.
0: Isn't that wild? I can relate to that. So I, I was abused as a kid. And most people that listen already know that, too. But I remember I, CPS would come. And fortunately, people in my family, they got to me mm-hmm. and made me lie and basically say, oh, you know, he's just, you know, he, he lies a lot. Which was, I wish now, because things would have been different, right? Mm-hmm. Do you ever wish that, too?
1: A lot. Mm-hmm. I um, I was a big liar, too, yeah. um, when I was a kid. Uh developed as kind of a defense mechanism, um, living in my house. But I basically, and started lying about everything. Mm. So when I was telling the truth, you know, nobody, nobody was going to believe me. Um, and I don't know how much different it would have been. Um, I know that at one point I was removed from my home when I was four, Um, for physical abuse, and then I was given back to my mom about six Mm. months later. And I don't know how differently, I mean, obviously, my life definitely wouldn't have ended up the way that it did, but um, I was already pretty predisposed to becoming an addict, so Mm -hmm. destruction would have happened.
0: Absolutely. Just to think about that, though, four years old, things could have, the tables could have been way different. Mm Mm-hmm. But you know what, that's just your pur- your purpose in your life. That's just it is what it is now,
3: yep.
0: you know, and, and it made it made you the person that you are now. And there's a lot of chaos that happened in between that time. So
2: I like the fact that she said um, that regardless that there was like some destructive behaviors that were going to happen later on, regardless of the outcome of getting taken away or, or staying there because there's something in us that just gravitates to that. You know, for me and myself, you know, I grew up in a, you know, a pretty crazy atmosphere, you know, people in and out of prison and a lot of drugs around me. And uh, you know, I was able to access a lot of those drugs because of how close they were and the fact that, you know, I was able to get high with with my parents. But I feel like that regardless of all of that, like, I can't put no blame on that, that situation because it was just in me. Mm-hmm. It was in me. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I feel that and I believe that, you know.
0: Right. No, I agree. Like, I
2: take full responsibility, you know.
0: Yeah, and, so, and honestly, some people will never, wouldn't take responsibility. Mm-hmm. A lot of people like doing the blame game in their entire life. And maybe they're normies or whatever, right?
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Like, but being an addict in recovery, we're so blessed. Because we're able we're able to identify these things. And we didn't identify them our, ourselves. Let's be honest. Somebody else had to teach us and oh, yeah. walk us through, you know, situational <laughs> things, right? Like, no, 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 no. This is why you did this, right? I mean, maybe normal people wake up one day and be like, wow, that was really fucked off. And I shouldn't be doing that, you know, and live a great life. Well, for me, nope. Sorry. I had yeah. to beat my fucking head into the wall about 50,000 times. Yep.
3: Absolutely.
0: Anyways, let's go, Charlie Wolf. Let's talk about it. So... At, uh, so the abuse started happening. I mean, honestly, it probably started happening at 4, right? I mean, if you were taken away at 4, there was some sort of abuse, maybe even molestation, but we don't know. Mm-hmm. But your knowledge of the molestation started at 5 or 6.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How long did that last for?
1: About 5 years. It stopped when I was 11. Um. So, like, my earliest memory that I have, period, is of... Um, getting slapped across the face when I was four and then taken from my mom by CPS later that day. So it just like my very earliest memory is of abuse and like just trauma. And then, um, my mom was an alcoholic and she had untreated bipolar depression. She self-medicated. Um, she was also an addict. She abused her prescription pain meds. Um, and it was just, you know, she was a rageaholic um, because of the bipolar depression. Rules were never the same two days in a row. Um, her lows were really, really low, like crawling on the ground, crying, begging for my forgiveness for what she'd done to me, like that week, that month, two years ago, whatever the case was. Um, eventually she got to the point where she felt like if I hit her back, we would be even. And so she started doing this thing where she would take me into her room and she would sit me on top of her and she wouldn't let me get off and she would scream at me until I had hit her enough times and hard enough that she felt we were even for whatever she had done to me. And um, that with... The molestation, um, I don't know how different it was from um, other people's experience. I don't think that my mom derived any kind of like sexual pleasure from it. Um, Honestly, the kind of molestation it was, was she treated me more like a partner than a daughter And and a lot of people have tried to say, oh, well, she flipped roles on you like you were the mom. Like, no, no, no. I was her wife. And she would discuss things with me like I was her partner. And the molestation was more in line with that. Like she wanted somebody to love her and to comfort her and to, you know, be there in a emotional and then then a physical capacity. And she used me for that and that's not to you know excuse her from that behavior she just she was really really sick
0: Mm. and that lasts until you're 11
1: yeah she um we started going to therapy Mm, okay (laughs) the wonders of therapy together yeah okay um and then also separately um to be honest uh my mom apologized to for everything she ever did to me you know when she was in her lows Except for molesting me. And I think the reason for that is because something was done to her. I think that's where she learned it. And I don't think that she realized the wrongness of what she was doing until she was going to therapy. Because I'd been going to therapy since I was four. It was court mandated. Um and But until she started going to therapy, she started seeing a therapist and she started getting on medication for her disease. I think at some point she talked about what had happened to her and a therapist. And the therapist told her, you were molested. That's mm. what happened to you. That's what that is. Mm. And it stopped. Because I don't have any other explanation as to why that stopped so suddenly, <clears throat> why she... I would say almost stopped drinking. I mean, it went from being three, sometimes four times a week to maybe once a month. That mm. was a huge, yeah. Drastic that's that's a, yeah. I was about to say
0: that's pretty difference. drastic. That's significant too. So just stop, just stop. Dr- I mean, obviously, so in some sense, the therapy was working.
1: Oh yeah, and she she became <coughs> a whole different person too. Like I mm. was used to. I mean, raging, terrifying. Like, I was terrified of my mother. I mean, I, to this day, I've, I was, I'm a horror movie buff. And yet, to this day, I have not seen anything in this life that scares me more than she did. Really? Um, I was so, like, uh, hyperventilating, unable to stop crying, wet my pants, terrified. And she went to being the kind of person that did that regularly to... And then got mad at me because I was crying. Um, Not because she, I think she was so ashamed of being the person that made me cry that she got even angrier. So she'd tell me to, to shut up and that I was lying when I said I was scared of her. To being the kind of person that used humor to diffuse situations and trying to actually have conversations with me and work through problems and if we were too heated go to our corners and then come back when we're both a little bit calmer to talk about it like when when I say like 360 180 (laughs) there's not a degree of difference I was so surprised I was so shocked and I didn't understand it because nobody ever sat me down you know and said like hey this is how she used to behave this is how she's behaving now this is why and all of that stuff was wrong, which is why she's stopping it. You know, and I didn't understand. And so for like the first year that she changed and she was so different, I fought it. I fought it tooth and nail. I remember purposefully egging her on and instigating arguments with her. Um, and she would always ask me why, and I said, "Because this is fake. This isn't who you are. I'm gonna make. I'm gonna make you show that the." real you is in there because this isn't you and honestly it was because my that's I'd learned how to deal with my mom up until that point you know and I knew how to navigate that relationship with my mom I knew how to manipulate that to get my needs met I knew how to work around that I knew how to survive in that I didn't know what to do with this new mom like I I didn't know how to handle that situation I didn't know how to handle like When we get sober, like, I didn't know how to handle healthy Mm -hmm. or healthier. Like, I had no idea what to do with that. So we're so
0: we're so accustomed to chaos. Mm -hmm. We thrive and live through it. And you're so young. (laughs) I mean, I mean, now you still are now. But then Mm -hmm. and you're that's the thought process. That's what's going through your little adolescent brain.
3: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Like, how can I manipulate my mom in order not to be touched or, you know, fucked with or something? It's so fucking wild.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: i mean i mean obviously there's no excuse for what she has done but do you know a little bit about her history at all like yeah. i mean obviously there was some molestation or something that because that shit just happens it's generational fucking tragedy too
1: yeah i am um, my mom was raised by an alcoholic bipolar mother jesus uh, yeah and um, she used to beat the crap out of her, like way worse. I mean, my mom, my mom never put me in the hospital. Her mom, like to the day that she died, she had a scar on her forehead from when her mom threw a metal dollhouse at her, kicked her down the stairs, would lock her in the pantry, you know, um, without just for hours. And um, it was a living hell. My, from what she explained to me, um, my grandfather divorced her mom when my mom was about sixteen remarried and I mean it shows you how abusive she was because nobody in my family ever spoke to her again except my mom she tried to continue having a relationship with her mother um for a couple more years after that and then um when my mom was in college I think her mom they got into it and her mom tried to hurt her like she tried to to beat on her again and my mom's an adult at that point and She slammed her, my mom slammed her up against the wall and told her, you know, you're never going to touch me again. She walked out of the house and she never spoke to her again until I was about nine. Like, my my cousins didn't even know she existed. She didn't know that our Nana, my grandfather's second wife, the only grandmother I've really ever known, wasn't our birth grandmother Mm. until my mom told me and I told them. And then my uncle got really pissed because... They didn't talk about her. She didn't exist. Um, they didn't go to her funeral when she died. Um, I only ever spoke to her once over the phone when I was nine.
3: Mm.
0: Wow. Yeah. That's some heavy shit right there. I mean, <clears throat> you talk about the you know generational fucking curse. Oh, yeah. The only thing that I was thinking about the entire time that you were talking about is like you're the stopping point. You know, you're the person that's going to change that family dynamic, you I know, mean which you already are absolutely, just by sitting here talking with us, degenerates and you know your story, I just uh, we've we said this before that before it aired, but there's going to be so many men and women that are going to listen to this, and just they're going to be able to relate on so many different things
2: yeah, I mean, and unfortunately, you know we have to go through a lot of these you know these crazy moments in our life and. I mean, obviously, you went through some really traumatic stuff and a long prison term as well. But, you know, it, it takes moments like that for us to, like, really change and, uh, you know, realize that we don't want that for ourselves or for our, the future of our children, you mm-hmm. know. And and by you doing the work and, and sitting here in this podcast with us talking, I mean, that, that shows a lot right there, you mm-hmm. know.
0: Definitely does. So with that being said so that that stopped at 11 um that dynamic was just different and you're trying to cope with that right so wh- when did you um what's the next move i guess what's the next well step to this fucking story <laughs> and scenario
1: um so we had up until um that point and a little bit later i didn't even know my mom was an alcoholic so what she would do is she would lock herself in her room on the weekends or at the end of a day, and um, she would just be gone. Right. You know, um, there were. M- just isolated. Yeah. There, there were multiple weekends where I didn't see my mom for like three days. Or she'd come just in. Just grabs and- a bottle <laughs> and just gets to town. <laughs> yeah. Um, she would come in my room like Monday morning, and she'd come and she'd ask me, hey, do you want to go to school today? Mm. No yeah thanks for asking (laughs) yeah i was like i got bullied all the time absolutely not Right. (laughs) socially awkward no friend kid yeah absolutely not um and um not to mention i was horrible in school df student of course look at
0: your fucking house you know (laughs) i mean that makes perfect sense
1: yeah, well, the, the sad thing is that she thought I had dyslexia um, or some kind of learning um, disorder because she had dyslexia, mm. and so she just assumed I got bad grades because of that. So she got me tested, and then she got my IQ tested, and when she found out the results, she was very wrong, mm. um, and when she found out just how smart I was, it just added fuel to the fire because she could not understand why. I was so bad at school and it just became another reason to fuel like the abuse, like homework going over homework in my house was like a surefire way for, you know, um, some type of, you know, physical abuse, panic attack, and like crying myself to sleep at night every Mm -hmm. time. But so like I said, so by around that time, like I had, I didn't know my mom was an alcoholic. I just knew the behavior um, the slurred speech, the not making sense, the, you know, wacky behavior, having to cover for her. And when I would ask my mom, you know, like, why did you do that? Why did you say that? Um, one time I came out in the middle of the night listening to my dog yelping. How old were you? Um,
0: at this, at this point.
1: Uh, when I came out in the middle of the night.
0: Yeah. I'm just trying to get to a point like, so she start drinking, I know. I so <clears throat> rewind. So 11, 11, The molestation stopped. She was getting some therapy. You guys were doing it together, mm-hmm. but then she would be a closet drinker. Would that was that shortly right after that time span, or
1: um, no? It's like for my whole life. Um, okay. Up until about eleven, the the behavior stopped. So instead of it being like three or four times a week, it was maybe like like I said, like maybe once every two weeks, like okay. twice a month. Um, I would I would see it. And mm. when I was younger and I would ask her, you know, why are you behaving like that? She would always say, oh, I, I don't remember that. I didn't do that. Mm. Like, I, I saw you doing that or you were talking to me. I, I know you said that. Her response was, oh, I was I must have been half asleep. So for my whole life up until um, 11 and a little bit later, my vocabulary for that behavior was she was half asleep.
0: God, the levels of manipulation. <laughs> the levels of oh, manipulation. The fact that she just just minimized <coughs> the fact that you weren't going, you're not doing good in school, was the way that you were living in dyslexia. Like get the fuck out
1: of here.
0: I mean, my, my family thought I was dyslexic too. They <laughs> <it> come to <laughs> find out I'm just dumb.
1: <laughs> God. Yeah. Um, but it, yeah. So it was. Um, that that's all I knew how to call it, and mm. in my head, um, as much as I, I hated it. At the same time, it was, I, I remember it was almost like a chant, you know? It's not her fault. She doesn't know what she's doing. Mm. You know, it, she can't help it. She's half asleep. Right. It's not her fault. She can't help it. She's half asleep. Right. Um, and, I mean, it didn't change me, you know, sitting on the counter sometimes praying she wouldn't come home. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's still, it still, it wasn't her fault. Um. So after 11, when those things started decreasing, after like the first year and I started kind of, we started learning a different type of relationship dynamic now. Um, I started actually having friends and doing well in school. Nice. <laughs> Surprise. Uh, I was in middle school at that point. And um, I started learning actually how to interact with other people. Uh, in a way that wasn't abusive, because I used to be very abusive myself, Um, and when I was 13, it was the summer between middle school and high school, um, I was vacuuming our house and in her room, and uh, I was lifted up the bed skirt to get as far underneath the bed, her bed, as I could, and I heard the clink, clink, Lifted up the bed skirt and there was like, you know, six, seven empty wine bottles stashed under her bed. And at 13, you know, watching CSI my whole life, like, (laughs) you know, uh, it all of a sudden (laughs) it just went bing, 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 you know, like, oh, this is why Hmm. it all clicked. And I, and I'm sure that like the night before that, or maybe a night like a couple days ago. She had been, quote-unquote, half asleep, and so it all just clicked. Right. And that click, honestly, that's that was the snapping point for me because oh, I guess that was, like, the first snap. And it was my entire life I had covered for her f- to myself, but also to her friends, to her co-workers, to our neighbors, to my family. Um, dealing with that behavior, being mortified over it, taking the pains from it when she would be abusive. And the whole time I had told myself, she can't help it. It's not her fault. And then I learned she can't help it. It was her fault. She knew that she hurt me when she was drinking, And she made the choice to do it anyway. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: I really don't matter to her. And the way that I can best describe it is like being beloved trash. You know, somebody wants you or they need you, but you're still worthless.
3: Mm
1: -hmm. And it just doesn't, it just didn't matter. It didn't matter how much she hurt me in my eyes and it was that sense of such a deep profound betrayal and it was like that those 13 years leading up to that point so it wasn't just that one betrayal it was like a betrayal of like 13 years every instance I could remember of being hurt or being embarrassed or you know having to plead with her to stay at a family function because she didn't want to be there anymore because she was Drunk, or she wanted to go get drunk, or whatever the case may be. Um,
0: so you didn't see her drink up until that point. I mean, well, obviously, you you, you didn't even see your drink, right? Or it had no. you, you never did, okay?
1: Like, I'd see her have like a glass of wine right. with dinner every now and then, but I'd never like seen her just sit down and start chugging right. and get drunk as an aftermath, right? Um, she she definitely
0: you never thought that that was a problem, nope, until that point, nope, yeah. She she hit it. I mean, us addicts. We hide things so well mm-hmm. so it's not like a big surprise, but man I bet I bet you're the flashing of all of the things in your life I bet it was just fucking so traumatic
1: mm-hmm. you talk about fuck, your life flashing yeah, before your yeah, eyes yeah. Yep, <laughs>
0: like all of these these situations man yeah
1: all the connections getting made and it's yeah
0: like, a- like i I literally' I'm, I'm sitting here and I can just like feel. I don't know, man. Do you feel it, Travis? Like I just feel this conversation, man. Like I just feel
2: it. The mystery man. I'm sorry. Yeah, My bad. Apologize. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know. Well, I. I mean, I. How what? How, how how fucking crazy is? How many? There, you said there's six wine bottles underneath the bed, just clinking everywhere. Did you call her out about it?
1: I didn't. Oh. I was. Honestly, like at that point. I, this sense of betrayal was just like, oh, so you don't give a fuck about me, yeah. then I'm not going to give a fuck about you. Oof. And I, so like my mom, like I grew up with my mom saying this thing and it's like branded into my cerebral cortex. As she used to say that I was her mini me. I was half of her. And this, like I really, that's what I really felt like. Like I was half a person and she was my other half. And so you can imagine, like, Siamese twins, this is the other half of you, and you absolutely hate them. You're terrified of them. And that's what it felt like. And it wasn't until I figured out she was an alcoholic that I was like, you know what? I'm just going to cut you out, and if I die, I die. Right. Like, I don't care at this point. I will be a half a person to get you away from me.
0: How many times did you try to commit suicide?
1: Um, up until that point, um, twice, once when I was six, once when I was 13, um, I, the, the one when I was 13 was when, um, I think it was, yeah, it was before, um, I found out she was an alcoholic. My mom had, uh, very strenuously pressured me into abandoning my friend group that I had made, um, in my first year of middle school and wanted me to hang out with people who were more, I guess, because I hung out with the outcasts, the goth kids, the emos, you know? Because I felt comfortable around them. We see eye to eye, <laughs> you oh, know? Yeah. Uh, she wanted me to find friends that were more, you know, like, normie. And so I left them, and I started hanging out with, you know, going to church three times a week, say, fire truck instead of fuck mm. kind of kids. Yeah. And... I always felt like an outcast. I was miserable, and um, finally, by the end of the year, I was like, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. Mm. Like these people, like they have accepted me to sit with them and they talk to me, and and the girls were actually really sweet and nice, and but I just couldn't jive mm. because
2: could not relate at all no
1: i'm fucking broken you know and really
2: really i think that's what it was you know is the fact that like we uh we find so much comfort in other broken people when we are broken ourselves you know yep and like touching back on on when you realize that your mom was an alcoholic like i can relate to that you know i remember you know going through a lot of drug raids and stuff when i was you know 11 12 years old is like when like heavily drug raids and finding uh you know big ziploc freezer bags full of methamphetamine and stuff you know finding all these things and then like as I got older you know I started looking back at my life and I was like maybe they were doing drugs my whole life and I just thought they were I just thought it was normal you know I never realized like how much of a of a like chaotic childhood that I actually had because I just accepted it as something normal. And then once I got a little bit older, I realized that I lived in a fucked up environment my whole life, you know? Yeah. Mm. And I, th- I think that's kind of what you're, what you're, what you're saying, you know, is the fact that, uh, when you've seen all those wine bo- bottles, it was like an epiphany of like, you know, it's not just, um, the fact that she was tired or, or that, uh, you know, she can't put some type of blame on me. You know, you're realizing that, that you know, her brokenness and, and, and you know, the alcoholism and like, mm. it really starts to make you evaluate your life like, like you know, has this been going on my whole life and I just didn't realize it? Or at least for myself, that's right. kind of what I experienced. And yeah. I imagine that's kind of what it was like for you.
1: Yep. I, um, it was definitely a... It was like I said it was just a betrayal but it's like that flash life flashing before your eyes but every single time every memory that's coming up is just ingraining this understanding at the time that I was I was a piece of beloved trash like obviously like you said you loved me you don't love me you need me because you need someone to love you unconditionally you don't give a fuck about me. You don't care how much you hurt me as long as I keep providing whatever service you need me to provide for you.
0: Layers and layers of manipulation. A hundred percent.
2: A hundred percent.
0: I mean, uh, <laughs> and, she, and she got to you at a at the moment that you came out of the womb, you know? Yeah. It was the moment. It was just like that whole
2: manipulation of like Siamese twins and. Right. A piece it, of you, yeah. It, it helps feed her mom's narrative yeah. of, of the situation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It probably just made her feel better, too, about herself. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, I... She... Yeah, she just... It, it was... I mean, she even told me, because I asked... Because she was single when she got pregnant with me. She was 32. Um, and people had advised her against getting pregnant because she wasn't in a relationship. Um, and she... Just wanted a baby so bad. And I remember my aunt telling me why she wanted a baby, is because she wanted someone to love her unconditionally. Mm. And to this day, sometimes I hear moms talking about their kids like that. And I'm sure they don't mean it in a toxic way. <laughs> you're just triggered <laughs> like a yes. motherfucker. So fucking bad. Because yeah. I'm like, you're just so fucking selfish. You just want that baby to love you. Yeah. Like you do realize that being a mother means being unconditionally loving to the child. Like, that's your job. And if they happen to love you back, you're fucking blessed. Mm. <laughs> you know? Um, but, like, for me, it was just the fact that my presence, my existence in that world up until that point was to serve her. Mm. And um, so when I was, like I said, when I was 13, we, we got into this fight after I like distanced myself from that friend group that she wanted me to be involved in. And I remember asking her this question and she was stone cold sober. She wasn't angry. So she's like, she wasn't like talking out of anger. And I asked her, Um, you know, do you like, would you love me if I wasn't your daughter? And she looked me right in the eye and she said, no. (laughs) And, you know, she left my room and I went and I grabbed a knife. So that was, I was just like, I don't, what's, what's the point? What's the point in being here anymore? If the other half of me doesn't even actually love me. I just love the position that I hold.
0: You grabbed a knife?
1: Yeah. um, My uh, mom uh, heavily believed that, you know, being a small girl, I should be walking around with a pocket knife at all times, especially if I was going out at night alone. Um, So she uh, bought me a couple of, um, like, pen, like, almost like pen knives. are not even longer than my finger, but they're pocket knives. And sure. she told me to carry one on me at all times Um when I left the house. And so I obviously had a couple of them. I had one in my room, went and grabbed it, and just started going to town on my arm.
0: Just start okay. Wow. Mm-hmm. And that became another probably addiction, right? Yeah. So you see. have a lot of scars.
1: Yeah. Well, not, not so much anymore. A lot of them have faded. You can still kind of see the ones... Um, on my the inside of my arms and stuff like that, um, yeah. but
0: I knew a lot of people that cut too, and they would do them in places where, well, excuse me, if you're wearing a bikini, obviously you'll be able to see them, right? But like you yeah. know, inner thigh and
3: mm-hmm.
0: yeah, <clears throat> wow. So when did uh, when did so when did things start changing again?
1: Um. So like after I found out she was an alcoholic, and it's. <laughs> The uh, the downward spiral happened pretty fast. So up until that point, I had a vehement campaign against smoking, just smoking in general, like you know the whole dare program and everything. I didn't even look at the drugs. I didn't even think about them. You know, I had self mutilation. Who needs drugs? Right. <laughs> um, but the I re- my mom was a smoker, and so I would literally lecture her for like thirty minutes, forty minutes on. Like, oh, so you just want to die of cancer and leave me alone. And I would, if she would leave the house or when she was on, you know, one of her weekend binges, I would rifle through the entire house. I would find her stash of cigarettes. I would break them in half and throw them in the trash. Within a week of finding out she was an alcoholic, I was smoking. Wow. Uh, within, I think, a month, I was smoking weed. Um, I didn't start doing uh, ecstasy until you know, um, the next, that was in, I want to say like probably June maybe. Um, and it wasn't until I, I didn't start doing ecstasy until I, uh, met my co-defendant, which was in December. Got it. Um, and that's the, the next step on the, the yeah. journey down to hell. Um, so I started, Smoking weed, um, started going to high school. At what age was this? 13.
0: 13.
1: Um, and, you know, sneaking out at night uh, started with, uh, there was this guy that I met in the summer before high school. And um, he was kind of like my in to the outcast criminal druggie group in mm-hmm. high school. And um, he burglarized houses at night. And so when he was like, hey, do you want to come out with me? I'm like, fuck yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, let's go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, so. Yes, please. Yes, yeah. please. Yeah. Yeah. yeah right absolutely. Yeah. You need me to hold something? <laughs> what do you want me to do? <laughs> uh. So uh, the, the supposed purpose of going and burglarizing the houses was to find alcohol. Never found any. <laughs> but because uh, most of the houses in the neighborhood I lived in, they had a second fridge out in their garage. So we never actually went into the houses, but we would go into their garages and we would rifle through their their fridge in the garage. And I knew that's where my mom kept her alcohol uh, was in the garage. So I figured, oh, you know, other people should, too. Like I said, and never found any. But um, so did that uh, for a couple months, getting high, um, you know, breaking plenty of laws, always out past curfew, um, got to a point where I would just go to sleep with my street clothes on just so i could wake up at you know midnight or one o'clock in the morning and bounce just get on with it Mm -hmm.
0: what was the effect when you start smoking weed was it like a relief because i know for me myself i spoke weed and i was fucking petrified (laughs) 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 but Um, i I mean alcohol on the other hand that was like that you know i felt that that heat you know that warmth and i was like oof but weed i i mean i was crawling my skin What was it like for you, though? I mean, being thirteen and having all of these things happen to you in your life.
1: You know, funnily enough, you know, just just my luck. The first time I ever smoked weed, I didn't feel a thing. I smoked more than everybody else. I kept taking hits. Right. Nothing. That's
0: that's that's really normal though.
1: Yeah, and um, that just kind of like set off this uh, persona Mm. that. As long as I kept doing the things that the other people around me were doing, as I, I had this, at the, it was totally unconscious, but it was, if I mirror you exactly, you will have no reason to reject me because I am you. And so I was a chameleon. Mm. And those are the people I wanted to hang around, so those are who I became. And so using drugs, I never, used a, I never smoked weed by myself. Um, never drank by myself. It was always something that I did. To be accepted by the people that I wanted to be accepted by it was basically a manipulation tactic. Mm. Um, I didn't really start getting anything out of doing drugs until I started doing ecstasy and then um, way later, cocaine.
2: Right. Did you realize how broken you were during this time, or was it just you just hanging out with people and, and drinking and doing drugs? Um, just like a social thing, did you realize that you were broken, and that was part of like
1: oh yeah i um I used to have this view of myself as um entirely subhuman, like i wasn't yeah. I did not consider sense. myself as like a human being. Like I, I don't, I didn't know what was wrong with me, but I just knew that I wasn't like anybody else. I and not like in a you know, yay, unique way. It was, <laughs> I'm, I am a creature from the depths of hell. Like, and, well, uh,
0: <laughs> and and not to mention your mother, she painted that picture really well for you to believe.
1: Mm-hmm. You well, know, I mean, she, and that's the. <sighs> And that was the thing about my mom is that when she wasn't, when she wasn't on drugs and she wasn't raging and she wasn't in her bipolar moments, um, she really did try her hardest to be a good mom. She did instill in me some really good values, um, like things to, to hold in high esteem, like getting an education and things like that. And she, it was really strange. So um, now that, you know, I'm an adult and I've taken plenty of courses in college and read lots of books, I know it's actually called complex PTSD. Um, So what happens is when someone is uh, immersed in an environment where they receive equal amounts of trauma and loving love or comfort Um, from the same person Mm. and it's going back without any kind of consistent application and that's what it was like with my mom there were times where she was just this amazing person and there are still things today that I that I admire about her I mean she was an incredibly she obviously it was extremely sick and in some ways she had a lot of weaknesses but there were other areas She's extremely strong. I mean, she put herself through college. She had a master's degree in mechanical engineering from Cal Poly. She's extremely intelligent. Um, To this day, I remember the first uh, lecture she ever gave me on the theory of heat dispersion in the first grade. (laughs) Like she did things and she was a person when she was good. She was she was a great person.
2: I like the fact that you could ag- acknowledge, you know, you can acknowledge all the good that she was that she did for you as well and, and not just point out the flaws, you know, mm-hmm. because us as individuals, especially if we came from trauma, it's so easy for us to get caught up on all the, all the trauma, you know. Yeah. And it sounds like you've done a lot of work on yourself too where you're able to to view her obviously as a broken human, but flawed, but still very smart, you know, mm-hmm. and was there for you at times.
0: Well, yeah, you clearly you. That's you know where you get it from, right? So you don't well, you don't know your dad, but the fact of the matter is, your mom seems like she was a pretty intelligent woman. I mean, look at you wrote a freaking book. Absolutely, For Christ's sake!
2: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Me and Dustin can't write books. So <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm no. tell you that right I now. I mean, I can barely read a book, so
0: <laughs> I mean, so keep 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 on going, <laughs> keep on going. We're good. <laughs> we, we just gotta we just gotta shut up over here because you You're good. You're good.
1: <laughs> so. Um, uh, as I'm going through high school, you know, I'm, you know, fucking up left and right, leaving uh, campus to go smoke and just uh, during uh, lunch and stuff like that. And that's not allowed at the high school I was at when they actually enforced it. So um actually got uh, expelled for my f- at, in like the middle of my first semester for uh, bartering prescription meds on campus, which was. Actually, not as bad as it sounds. For as much as the shit I was doing, it was it was nothing. I had uh, fucking... <laughs> <laughs> I had Naperson in my backpack because I had busted my knee. And uh, one of my friends swore that it was not Naperson. Like, it was some kind of narcotic, and he wanted to trade me some cigarettes for it. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Why <laughs> not? I'm not going to tell you you're wrong.
2: What is Napperson? Naperson. It's, it's like is, an ad, it's like an Advil.
1: Yeah, it's like naproxen. It's an anti-inflammatory. Yeah, hmm. yeah That's no, exactly it's
2: exactly why I do not know what it is. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, has yeah. yeah, no narcotic effect whatsoever. I,
0: I only know just because I was a pill head, <laughs> and I would try to get high off everything. anything and everything. Yeah. I probably even shot that shit <laughs> on
2: Don't tell me I yeah. yeah. caught up shooting that shit. Yeah. <laughs> what are you
0: gonna what are you gonna load it on? Naperson motherfuckers. <laughs> Shoot it right here. Last headache. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yep.
1: Yeah, so So um,
0: you're a drug dealer. Perfect.
1: Yep. Yep. <laughs> and uh got caught coming back on campus after smoking. My friend, quote unquote, ratted me out uh to the assistant principal. Got expelled for the rest of the semester. Checks out. Damn. Yeah.
2: Someone someone always telling. Yeah. <laughs>
1: you know. Um, loose
0: lips sink ships, motherfuckers. God damn it. Those, <laughs> see, I told you I was get the mumble mouth here soon. <laughs> <since. laughs>
1: but uh, it was actually ended up being a good thing for me. It uh, I ended up going to like independent study mm. and you know, I had this policy. That if I was going to go to school for eight plus hours a day, I was not going to do four more hours of homework. I refused. I felt like if you're an adult and you don't have to work that much, why do I have to work that much as a kid? (laughs) I'm either going to do my homework and not go to school or I'm going to go to school and not do my homework. Mm. If I'm in school and I'm sitting in class, I will do all of my homework in (coughs) class and I'd get A's. But the second I leave campus, I'm not doing more school. So... Going into independent study, it was nothing but homework. They would just give you the book, tell you the assignments, and go. And I got A's on everything. And I went so far in one of my classes, I completely finished out the rest of the year. So by the time I went back for my second semester, um, I had, like, one less class, which really didn't serve me any because it just meant that, you know, I could go fuck around um, right. when I was probably should have been in school but um to back up a little bit um in december is when i met my future Mm -hmm. co-defendant i had heard about him a lot he was in college um, but he had been a part of my friend group the year previously he had been a senior um and A lot of people had told me about him. A lot of people had just, you know, like, oh, you got to meet him. Um, They called him Boston. That wasn't his real name. That was his nickname. But like, oh, you got to meet Boston. You know, you love him. But I had like a kind of like a mini vendetta against him because my best friend at the time, his real name was Matt, but his nickname was God. And he was also a drug dealer. So that fits um
0: the fact that his (laughs) fucking nickname is god god God, what a fucking loser
1: (laughs) Uh, i mean he didn't call himself that other everybody did did. yes
0: well as himself as a man he'd be like listen listen guys i appreciate that you know you call me jesus you know what (laughs) what i mean but god's a little bit too much (laughs) like
2: dude's nickname is god i could just imagine that dude just wearing all black just being straight emo just the biggest weirdo yeah
1: Yep, um, S-
0: fucking assistant manager at Hot, hot Topic, <laughs> <laughs> drug dealer on the side.
1: Yep, um, no, but he was um, he he had his own you know huge trial of shit that he went through too. Like his his childhood was pretty um, his how he came to be I guess was, mm. was pretty fucked up too. Um, so he had his all all of his own pain. Sure, that's why we we jived. Yeah, um,
0: you fell in love,
1: <laughs> kind of. <laughs> yeah. um, and so he was, like, my best friend at the time. And um, so he and Boston had dated at one point.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, hold on. Yeah, hold yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go, so go ahead. I'm
2: going to sit this one out. Can, <laughs> you? <laughs> Can you explain? Yeah.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it, yeah. I mean, Boston was bi. Uh, God was gay. Okay. Yeah, it just adds to the to the twist to the, um the
2: level of goth right yes yeah. yes absolutely <laughs> god damn <laughs> um
1: and so it was in the year previous to that and so they had gotten together on god's birthday and then boston broke up with him on or no i am gotten together on valentine's day and then he broke up with god on god's birthday and so he never said anything, but the way that he would talk about it, I knew that he still, it still hurt him and he still had like a thing for Boston. Sure. So, you know, being the good friend that I was, I automatically hate Boston. Sure. Um. <laughs> uh, until I met him for the first time, I was, um, so my town was, you know, pretty small. We have a town center and. Like that's where the movie theater is. That's where all the shops are. You know, that's where the coffee shop that all the goth kids hung out in, and I was a goth kid, so um, we I was there, and I uh, was hanging out with uh, a friend of mine, two friends of mine, and we'd been smoking weed and stuff like that. And my mom was supposed to come pick me up, and around like so, around thirteen, her alcoholism started getting bad again. Mm. And um, so by this time, uh, when she came to pick me up, as soon as I opened the door, I knew she was drunk. And she was supposed to be driving, not just me, but me and my friend home, because he was supposed to be staying the night at my house. And I'd already had more than one account of getting in the car with her, not realizing she was drunk with a friend, and then her driving crazy and I'd had to drive the car, you know, multiple times home uh for her. And so just opening the door realizing she was drunk, I was like, yeah, no, I'm not getting in the car. He's not getting in the car. I I no. Like you can fuck my life up. Let's go. Let's let's die. But we're not going to kill Brent. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm.
1: So um I asked her you know, again, not even addressing it because we don't do that in alcoholic families. We don't call people on their shit. Uh, I just asked her if I could stay later. And um, I said, you know, Brett's dad's coming home from work. He can drop us off um, at home on his way back. And so she said, okay, she left, stayed, smoked some more weed. Um, And as we're sitting in the back of this coffee shop, that was called Habit. Funnily enough, mm. uh, this guy walks in, you know, and he <laughs> uh, walks up to the counter. Brett gets up and says, Boston, you know, goes over, gives him a hug. And I'm like, ah, you're Boston. Mm. I hate you, mm. <laughs> you know. Um, however, I am, um, you know, being the uh, well equ- equipped by this time, now 14 year old that I am, I have a bunch of lighters. And this is so sad. Um, I have really small, soft hands. This has not changed. Child safety locks on lock- on, <laughs> fucking <laughs> lighters used to rip up my thumbs. Okay. So I had six of them because, you know, stolen. And uh, I was trying to light one of my cigarettes, or I went to go bum one off of him because, yeah, I may hate you, but I'm still going to ask you for a cigarette. Sure. Um, And I couldn't light my lighter, so he went, and he just, you know, flipped out his... Uh, pocket knife flicked all of them off, and I was like, "Okay, maybe you're you're, you're kind of cool." Right. Asked him if he wanted to go smoke some weed with us. We went. And we smoked some weed. Ended up talking for maybe forty five minutes straight. I was like, "Okay, this plus also being high, maybe you're not so bad." Dad's uh, Brett's dad got a called us said that he's not going to be able to come home from work um, until like one o'clock in the morning. It's already past eleven. And there is a curfew in my town. You can't be out past eleven. I had really, yeah, wow. <laughs> and they enforce it. There's only two main roads in my town, and one of them goes past the cop station. So, and what what
0: happened if you're get, if you get, get caught?
1: Uh, they will drive you home, give you a citation, <laughs> and
0: the fucking government <laughs> is so wild to me, dude. There's places that are still like it's like well, is this communist or not? <laughs> wild.
1: Well, um.
0: If I want to stay past eleven thirty and smoke fucking weed in my golf clothes, I'm going to do that. Describe to the audience, too. What does uh, Boston look like? I'm sure we all we all have a picture of what <laughs> goth people look like, but just go, please. Ex- let's let them know what he looked like.
1: Well, actually, he was not. He did not look like a, a characteristic goth kid. Uh, he whatever, was. That's not funny. Uh, blonde. <laughs> well, I mean, blonde hair, blue eyed, uh, slender, probably like maybe. I'm going to say 6'2". Oh wow six 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 two maybe i mean i might have been a lot shorter then. No, he's very tall um but he also dressed in like trip pants trench coat ah, you know trench coat there yep. bing bong yep
0: nailed it <laughs>
1: i mean i still i i'm still looking forward to th- <laughs> i'm still looking forward to the day i can afford a, a trench coat because that was like my safety blanket growing up i want another one
0: really
1: um all right um but so
0: you're still goth at heart. Oh yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah. Uh not not too emo. <coughs> I can't uh, get down with the emo-ness too much anymore. No. Yeah, I don't hate life. <laughs> I'm pretty happy about All it right. now. Um but so I didn't have anybody to come pick us up. We can't walk home. It's like 5 miles. It wouldn't have been a big deal, but I had previously just gotten a citation for being out past curfew a couple months before that. So I really didn't want to get picked up by the cops again. And like I said, there's no avoiding it when you walk home on a main road for at least like three miles of it. And uh, so I, you know, turned to dude with the car, Boston. Boston. All right. I asked him. I'm like, hey, look, I know I don't know you, (laughs) but um, I have no way of getting home. Can you can you give us a lift home? And he said, yeah, absolutely. So he gave us a lift home and um, that just that was the beginning of the end. You know, the next week he was at um, Habit again, asked for my phone number, gave it to him. um, And we just started texting, hanging out uh, once a week, turned to, you know, Saturdays and Sundays. And then
0: give it give it a timeline real quick because I'm going to say some. So how old were you? Fourteen. How old was he?
1: 19.
0: There's a fucking line in the sand, man. Yeah. And, like, you know, there's... Uh, there's a lot of things, like, going on in this little motorcycle community. I shouldn't say little, big, right? But there's there's this, uh, you know, a case that was brought up of somebody doing some things, like, 11 years, or he's painting this picture, but the fact of the matter is he's a convicted child molester. Mm-hmm. That's his charges. He played guilty to it. And I've been, been every... There's been a few people that have reached out to me and and I just keep saying the same thing. There's a fucking line in the sand. When I turned eighteen, I knew that I couldn't fucking date that seventeen year old even when I went to high school. It's just like it's instilled. You know, it's it's just there's a fucking line in the sand and nineteen year olds should not be dating fourteen year olds.
1: Yeah, I I defended it. I defended him. I'm like, sure you did. And I didn't get it until I was twenty and I was, yeah, in prison and somebody asked me, they're like, so he was 19. I said, yeah. He was like, you were 14. I'm like, yeah. And they're like, okay, so how would you feel about dating a 15-year-old little boy right now? And I'm like, that's disgusting. That's disgusting. Right. Oh my God. Like, I, it hit me, that realization. I'm like, what the fuck was he thinking? How, wh- ew. Right. You know, like, right. I, I don't understand because who in their right mind when you're 19 and he had other girls that were appropriately aged. And let's just say like they had feminine bodies. I didn't, um, that, that wanted him, that wanted to be with him. Like, why would you pass up that to be with a 14 year old little girl? You know? Yeah. And I just,
0: so you start, he start texting you and obviously you were, you were okay with it.
1: Yeah, right. yeah. I, um, you know, obviously every younger girl likes older older guys. It's mm-hmm. always a that's that's the downfall uh, for a lot of teenage girls, um, and I uh, so we started texting, started hanging out um, whenever I would go to town center because town center was like a weekly thing. Sure, and um, at one point, like I was just telling him. Everything. <laughs>
0: Travis is flipping through her book. It's fucking massive, you guys.
2: It's a fucking encyclopedia.
0: Yeah. Here. So let's just let's just stop real quick. It's, the book's called Broken. CM Wolf wrote it. Where can they find this book at?
1: Uh, it's on Amazon. It's also available at Barnes and Noble. Perfect. The fact
2: that I can't smoke in this studio is <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> so when you look up CM Wolf, will it tell the story of? Of what happened to you get it getting to prison?
1: No, um, so I what's
2: the reason behind that? If you don't mind me asking,
1: I changed my name. So uh, my birth name was Tyler Witt. So um, if you look
2: up Tyler Witt, you'll see the story of of um, the yeah. incident and
1: yep everything. Okay, yeah, and there's there's lots to look at. Well, I mean, what's the what's the purpose
0: what of changing your name if you're so? Oh, if you're okay with like saying.
1: Well, the biggest thing um like I've wanted to change it since before I got out of prison and that was mostly because um I don't have a problem sharing my story. Sure. Um what I do have a concern about is like going and trying to get a job. And
3: Absolutely.
1: on my resume, you know, they Google my name or they look me up and that's the first thing that they see
0: yeah okay that makes sense red like a red flag got yeah. it yeah absolutely. i mean <clears throat> okay well that makes sense well i mean it's two identities really let's mm-hmm. be honest yeah that person is the past life this is the new life
1: and that was the other but person. at the end of the day
0: right. your old life is always going to be with you yep you know
2: i do think it's important for the listeners though to to know who she was oh for sure to be able to if they want you know look that up you know because it is a A very interesting story. I
0: love... We have have given these guys an hour of cliffhangers this far. Of saying prison and what... I can't even believe we've
2: been on here for an hour, to be honest.
0: It's fucking gold. And I think it's great because everybody's like, just probably, what the fuck? You know what I mean? (laughs) No, no, no. Not yet. Not yet. You fucking degenerates.
1: Well, now that they know my real name, they've probably already Googled it. (laughs) Shit. (laughs) Fucking Travis. (laughs) No, no, no. That's
2: good. That's gonna hold them on even longer. Well, it
0: <laughs> uh, doesn't matter. The, you, you can read whatever you want. You're not. Gonna, you're gonna hear the real shit right now. Yeah. So, 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 so the relationship started with you guys. Um, did were you? I mean, you became boyfriend or girlfriend?
1: Yeah. Um, eventually. So what what happened is he's I was I was buying my smokes off of him, um, and. At one, so he had come t- to my house to give me smokes like once before that, once um, is probably like in January, like be- between the middle, beginning of December sure. and of January. And um, at the time I had a boyfriend <clears throat> that uh, so it was kind of a weird relationship. Like I was confiding in him a lot, like more than I had anybody else in my life. And he was listening to me. Like, I felt like nobody had ever listened to me before. Mm-hmm. And one day I had a absolutely horrible, like, knockdown, down drag-out fight with my mom. Showed up at school, like, crying my eyes out kind of thing. And I texted him and I said, Hey, I don't need smokes. I just need somebody to talk to. Like, can you come by my house tonight, please? And he showed up. I st- sat in his car for about, I want to say this is Boston, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, four hours. And, um, I just talked about everything. And that was really the beginning of making him my higher power because I just handed him my life. Right. And I asked him like, what do I do from here? What do I do? And you know, he helped me work it out. Okay. And, um,
0: Let me ask you real quick, too. So, with all the trauma and all these the things that happened to you in life, did you have a lot of boyfriends? You know, did your did you start having sex at an early age, or was that not in the picture? Uh, Because I know for some, it happens right away.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, I had had a lot of, if you want to call them boyfriends, I flirted a lot. I was a huge flirt. Got it. And um, like I would. Flirt with a guy, and then he'd ask me to be his girlfriend, and then like a week later, I'd want to go flirt with another guy, and I felt like one of my th- one of my r- quote unquote rules was like, oh, if we- if you want to go flirt with another guy, obviously you're not with the right guy, so you should probably break up with him because sure. you know don't be a cheater. Sure. Um, so that's what I would do. So I, okay. if you if you lasted two weeks, you know that was a, <laughs> that was a victory. All right. <laughs> um, but and the only reason why I was with my boyfriend at that time when I met boston uh was you're flirting well it no the, the reason yeah well the reason why i was with that boyfriend for so long because up until the time i broke up with him i was with him i think for three months was because two of those months he was in juvie okay perfect <laughs> you know um
2: that'll hold a relationship together
1: absolutely, oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it was probably the,
0: one of the best ones you ever had <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh but like as we started like getting more emotionally connected and then um he knew I had a boyfriend. Um and there were but oh to answer your question, no, up until that point I hadn't had sex yet.
0: Wow. Yeah. Good for you. <sighs> I mean I, seriously, I mean, even the the, the the trauma and all of the things that have that has happened to you mm-hmm. to uh you know, hold on to something like that, especially especially I'm such an idiot especially fuck i say especially the fuck is this what kind of language is that trans <laughs> <mind>. no okay <laughs> anyways um you know especially that uh you would just i would think for myself it was like i started really young too mm-hmm. and it was like that needed to be loved and wanting to have companionship which i didn't even understand that word yet mm-hmm. and uh and I was, I guess, just trying to think if that was something that was relatable with you, but clearly not. I mean, even though at 14, probably, mm-hmm. I'm assuming, yep. that's when it happened.
3: Yeah. So and it's still really
0: young.
1: Yep.
0: I mean, I can't even imagine that's that's when I lost my virginity, too. And I see 14-year-olds today that are still playing in the streets with their kids. Yeah. Right. And not even having the life that we had. No. Nope. Which is fucking awesome. And, is. I know, and I know there's some kids that are not. You know, there's a lot of kids that are just like us. And and doing all these wrong things at at, at such an early age, mm-hmm. stunting our growth. Oh yeah, killing our spirits. You know, just done. All right. Well, then an- that answer that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So, like, uh, as we started, and I started coming depend on him more and more. Like I said, like he started becoming my higher power. I just kind of would like hand my life over to him whenever anything like negative would happen and I would just be having a meltdown Mm. because I had I was undiagnosed at the time. But I had anxiety and depression. So anytime I was feeling overwhelmed um, and like overwhelmed for me looked like like going kind of crazy, like, you know, uh, crying uncontrollably, um, just having panic attacks. I was going
0: to say probably a lot like your mother.
1: Yeah. Right, like real just, familiar. Yeah. That's what you know. Yeah, just flipping out. Right. And I would just bring all of that to him, and I would completely, like, just emotionally throw up all over him, and he would just, you know, take it in, put the pieces together, hand it back to me, and say, here. Use you know? it
2: using him like a drug. Yep. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what you were doing.
1: Yep. And um, by the time... um. You know, is a little after February, um, after Valentine's Day, uh my boyfriend at the time got out of juvie and um he and I had an agreement that he wasn't gonna use drugs anymore because you know he'd go back to juvie. Sure. Um, but I told him like, Hey, if you're gonna use, just let me know so that way if you disappear, like I know where you went. And um I got in trouble for something. I don't even remember what. But um, my mom grounded me. I wasn't able to go to Town Center that weekend or that Friday. And um, by this time, my mom's met Boston and she adores him. You know, um, she put him in the big brother role in my life.
0: Did she know that you guys were dating?
1: No. Well, up until that time, we weren't.
0: Right. OK. But So you're just friends. Mm-hmm. But she never was weird about him being 19 and 14.
1: No. I mean, and it wasn't just him, you know, like later on people like, "Oh, well, he manipulated her. He did this." I'm like, "No, I had other friends who were 18, and I remember there was this one guy that I had been hanging out with a lot, and I asked him how she w- I asked her how she would feel about me like dating him, and she's like, "Well, I would want to get to know him a little bit better, but other than that, I don't see a problem with it."
3: Mm.
1: You know, I I don't I don't know what her mentality was behind that, so yeah. I can't really tell you. Um, but, you know, she, like, he was kind of like sit down for family dinners. Like right. that, that kind of inclusion in our family unit by that time. Um, but he was also the one that would come and pick me up when my mom was drunk. So when my mom would, you know, be drunk and she'd start getting violent, I would call him, he would come get me And I'd go hang out in his car for, you know, four hours. Or um, there were a couple of times where I went and I slept at his house. And my mom, she got to the point where she would call him if she didn't know where I was in the morning. And um, then she just kind of stopped asking because she knew if I was with him, she knew why I was with him. So, again, we're never talking about this. We're not going to talk about the reason why I had to leave in the middle of the night. Um, Just that...
0: Just straight minimizing it. Just, it never happened.
1: Yep. Just that, Mm. oh, Boston's cleaning up my mess. Boston's taking care of her. You know? And um, she she adored him for it. And um, he's also the only person to physically put himself between my mom and a drunken rage in me. Mm. And... So, again, that just adds to the whole, like, you're my savior, you're my higher power, you know, the way that I viewed him. And um, so that weekend, you know, he was going to come over for family dinner and um, I was grounded. I couldn't go to town center to see my boyfriend. And then so he comes over, he sees me or Boston comes over and sees me for like 30 minutes. He goes to town center because he's going to go hang out with some of his friends and then come back he ends up coming back maybe about a half hour later and he tells me, you know, oh, your your, your boyfriend is uh, doing drugs. Obviously, you know, broke my whole heart. You know, like, oh, I can't believe he lied to me all that other stuff. And um, so I go. He convinces my mom to let me go break up with dude. I go break up with dude. And what was it? Like two days later, we're sitting in Boston's car. And um, he asked me to be his girlfriend.
2: Straight manipulator. Hey, was Boston doing drugs at all?
1: Oh, yeah. He was, uh, he was, uh, was, your,
0: was your ex-boyfriend now doing drugs? Or was that a lie for Boston to start dating
1: you? <laughs> Both. <laughs> <laughs> Both. I didn't find this out until I was in juvie later. Because, uh-huh. um, you know, he ended up going to juvie and I met him and we were talking. And he was like, hey, by the way, did you know... Boston's the one that sold me those drugs that night. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> um, come to find out, Boston went to town center specifically with the purpose of finding him.
3: To sell him drugs. To sell drugs. him drugs, so,
1: to come back and tell me that he was doing drugs. Right. And when he came back and he told me, he said that he, I was like, how do you know? He said, well, Graham yeah. is the one, which is another one of our friends. Graham is the one that sold him the drugs. hmm so, you know, lots of, <laughs> lots of manipulation, you know. To the core. Oh, yeah. Um, so we ended up, you know, we started dating. And um, uh, we, uh, you know, that was on uh, February 23rd. Mm. Um, and then, like, within two weeks, uh, we started having sex. You know, obviously, if um, I'm sure there are plenty of women. I don't know how it is with guys, mm-hmm. but um, the the person you lose your virginity to, if it is in a relationship, that just piles on the like the obsession. And so it was that that was it. You know, sealed sealed for for. Yeah, forever. Forever. I mean, uh,
0: yeah, no matter what. I mean, everybody can relate. They all remember who their first person that they ever been with was.
2: Yeah, it was my wife.
0: (laughs) Good fucking answer, bro. That's
1: awesome. (laughs) Yeah,
0: really good answer. (laughs) Fucking loser. (laughs) (laughs) No, but I, I, listen, I can totally relate with that. I mean, but I mean, I can't relate with the way women feel, Mm -hmm. but I can, I, I can assure you I can understand being 14 years old and, you know that happening to you and losing your virginity i'm sure that you were pretty stuck like chuck you're probably you were already thought of him as a higher power yeah. and that was just sealed the deal yep what a fucking boston man boston fucking pedophile and a fucking manipulator go figure
1: <laughs> yeah
0: all right
2: do you still talk to boston i do not when was the last time you were in contact with him?
1: um about five years after i got arrested um I can tell you that. Tell talk about that more because there's like a whole yeah. story behind yeah, that. Travis, calm down. <laughs> you
2: know, we're, we're an hour and seventeen minutes into this, you know. <laughs> yeah.
1: I'm like I feel like I should apologize, but you did say, you know, like I'm, i it, It's a lot. It know? is a lot. Um, so <clears throat> you're dating. Um, within let's see, January, February, March.
2: The fact, um, that, the fact that she can remember dates like this I know. is insane.
0: Well, she's still young. She's 29.
2: I can't remember what I did last I
0: week. Know. Well,
1: it, the court well, process ho- kind of has a way of, like, branding those dates into you. Right. <laughs> um, but uh, not to mention, like, you have to, when you go through the process of trying to get out of prison, you have to remember those things. And then mm. when you're in prison, rehabilitate a process, you do... Like timelines a lot as a part of your recovery, so um let's see. I can't remember if I think about it backwards. Um, so he was he, and he started living with us. Uh, my mom rented out one of our the rooms in our house to him, and you know, he just took on full this sounds so fucked up, but he f- he took on full dad mode. In my life. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom just kind of handed over her parental responsibilities to him. And he he picked him up. Right.
0: Even though you guys were having sex, your mom had no idea. No. Correct. So that's why she was like, okay, this guy's a really good guy. He's really taking care of my daughter.
1: Yep. Um, do you
2: think it really would have mattered?
1: It did matter. It ended up mattering.
2: Okay. So we'll get there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: um, so, it, I mean, like, when I say dad mode i mean like he took me to school every day he picked me up from school every day he checked my homework he met with my teachers for parent, uh parent teacher conferences he was on my emergency contact card at school to come pick me up when i was sick he um was regulating my drug intake he was uh, he was the reason why i stopped cutting Mm. um you know parent right yeah And, uh, so he had been living with us for about a month when my mom found out we were having sex. And, uh, her response to that was, you know, sane. That was sane mom response. Uh, get out of my house. You're never seeing my daughter again. Um, my response to that was... The only person that makes my life bearable is now getting, you know, uh, cut off from my life because of the person that I hate the most.
0: Yeah,
3: absolutely.
1: And the only way and the very first thing I did was, you know, she had him come over the that next I think it was the next day or that weekend to come get all of his shit. And she sat him down with two of her co-workers, male co-workers, and basically told him, you're never going to talk to her again. You're never going to see her again. And as long as you don't have any more contact with my daughter, I won't press charges on you for statutory rape." When I heard that conversation, I went up to my room, I packed my bags, and I left. Hmm. And... I went to a pl- uh, to this place that we usually hung out. You know, go figure, uh, emo goth. It was a graveyard, um, and obviously, Boston knew exactly where to find me. So my mom, when she realized I was gone, sent him to go find me and bring me home.
0: So even though she said, "Don't see," her, she got it.
1: Yeah, Cause, Jesus Christ. Because she knew she was there. Was there was she knew she was never going to get me to come home. She had already much she'd already come to depend on him to take care of me so much up to that point that, you know, turning to him and saying, well, you know, go get her. Mm -hmm. So he found me and I told him, you know, I cannot live without you. I can't do this without you. Like I said, my mom's alcoholism was starting to get bad again. Um, And it wasn't just alcohol alcoholism at that point she's also you know um abusing her prescription meds with that Um, both her psych meds and uh pain meds and
0: that's a cocktail right there so she's probably just all over the place and when you're
2: coming down (whistles) yeah psycho Mm. that's how my mom was Mm
1: -hmm. and (laughs) And then she obviously, so she's using her psych meds when she's not supposed to, which means she doesn't have them when she would need them. Need them, yeah, right, right. So, um, but I told him, I'm like, I can't, I can't do this. I can't do this without you, you know. And I told him, you know, we always joke about being Romeo and Juliet, um, but which is hopefully we had a different ending. Well, maybe we're not supposed to. You know, maybe like we should just kill ourselves because. That way we can be together for all of eternity and we don't have to worry about anybody else getting in the way. And his response to that was, that should be an absolute last resort. Mm. Not.
0: What's going on, guys? Dustin with the LFG 1904 show. Proud to announce our partnership with Law Tigers. If you have been in a motorcycle accident, let's get you the compensation you deserve today and get you back on the road. Go ahead and call this number, 858 306-1986 once again that number is 858-306-1986 law tigers nationwide doesn't matter where you're at call that number lfg
1: no that's a horrible idea that was it's a last resort still on the table but you know just wait you know we'll um we'll run away together
0: what's going on guys i'm here to talk about a clothing brand the recipe golf this brand is more than the ode to golf it's a celebration of holding your head up high, always embracing the experience that shape our identity. The recipe that signifies an understanding that the success requires a blend of elements. A recipe that defines who we are in this world. Going to give them a follow today, guys, on Facebook or Instagram, The Recipe Golf. Or visit their website, www.therecipegolf.store. Use promo code LFG for your first purchase. Let's fucking
2: go
1: first let's try that first and that was and I you know he promised me that you know we were gonna start putting things together to try to run away so that's what got me to go home and for the next month you know I thought being a kid and growing up with my mom the way that she was that had been hell up into that point but that last month that was hell i like she would come into my room in the middle of the night and she would just start screaming at me Mm. and um you know half the time she put her hands on me i got into shoving matches with her and it would just get to a point where i'd be screaming at her begging her just to leave me alone Yeah. Um, more than one time I would have to run past her into my bathroom cause it was the only door with a lock, um, to lock the doors to keep her away from me so I could sleep on the floor. And, um, I I threatened her with a knife more than once, my little pen knife, mm. um, to leave me alone just so I could sleep. And, um, I started, uh, using drugs lot more heavily um instead of just you know doing them when they were around now it was like uh or you know it just so happened like i didn't have a plan it was people calling me and saying hey you know we're going out to go smoke some weed do you want to come with yes we're gonna go do some ecstasy do you want to?" yes you know before it was just like eh, you know whatever you know if it happens it happens if it doesn't it doesn't and like at that point it was just now i want to get loaded right and, um, <clears throat> that, and then the times that I could steal away to go see Boston under my mom's nose were like the only thing that was, I wouldn't say keeping me sane. Cause it definitely wasn't sane, but, uh, it was the only thing keeping me together. Um, about a month of that, my mom, or like a week into that month, my m- mom couldn't get in contact with me. I was at a friend's house. I didn't have any cell service. I wasn't where I was supposed to be. I wasn't. I lied to her. Told her I was going to somewhere else, and she couldn't get a hold of me. So um, when she couldn't find me, she called the cops. She thought that Boston and I had run off together, and um, ended up calling her, getting her messages, called her back, told her where I was. Cops came and got me, and that was when she, because she thought we had run off together, reported him for statutory rape. Mm-hmm. So the next three weeks were, you know, interviews with detectives, me and him, both of us saying, yeah, no, we're not in a sexual relationship. She's crazy. She's a drunk. You know, uh, she doesn't know what she's talking about. Um, Yada, yada, yada. Denying it full blown. Um, In June, um, second week of June, is when my mom called the police over. And she told me, you know, this is your last chance to tell them the truth. I said, okay, you know. It came to the house, told him the same, same thing I always did. No, I'm not in a sexual relationship with him. No, we've never had sex. No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. Didn't know it, but my mom had actually gone through my backpack and found my diary. Read it, which, you know. Um, pretty much read like a porno when it came to my sex life. It was very detailed because I'm a writer. Sure. Um, and she turned that over to the police. When she heard me and that I was still lying and uh, still not telling the truth, she was like, okay, well, if you're not going to tell the truth, then this is. So um, she handed that over to the police after I was done quote-unquote interviewing with them. She didn't tell me about it till the next day. She went to come pick me up from summer school, and when she dropped me off at the house, she told me, mm. And I lost my mind. The invasion of privacy didn't even register. The first thing my mind went went to was, "They're going to arrest him. I'm going to lose him. Mm. He's going to prison." And I just I, I just started screaming at her completely incoherently I don't I don't remember formed words coming out of my mouth I just completely lost my shit um and I remember her looking at me just with this disgusted look on her face and she just said what is wrong with you Mm. and then left she went back to work and I first thing she did as soon as she was you know out called Boston Tried to tell him what was going on. Again, wasn't making any sense. Formed words were not coming out of my mouth. Until finally, you know, um, went outside pacing. Smoked cigarette. Calm calm down enough to get words out. He still didn't quite understand what I was saying. Um, but he knew that something had happened. So he just told me, hold on. Try to calm down. I'm going to come to the house right now. And so I really wasn't able to calm down i ended up you know hyperventilating myself into a blackout because that's what happens with my panic attacks and um he came but when i kind of woke up i came to he was in the house and he was asking me you know what happened what's wrong so i told him what happened and you know obviously this hits him he knows he's going to prison um you Know when 14 19 year old, very dramatic, a statutory rape with a consenting 14 year old, even in you know upper white middle class. Probably we would have gotten some jail time, had to register as a sex offender, but he wouldn't have gotten to prison, most likely. Um, but I
0: mean, he might even just got probation, really. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's fucking California, yeah, fucking yeah. suckers. pretty much. Yeah, but so. still, you're st- it's still, a, it's an awful fucking charge to have, and you're a child molester, so yeah, and so what I'm, I'm, I'm yeah. Gonna, I'm here. I'm here.
1: (laughs) 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 So um, we start trying to talk to try to figure things out. And I just keep telling him, you know, I can't, I can't, I can't do this. You know, I, same thing from a a month ago. Like, I can't, I cannot do this. I cannot live with her without you. I can't do this alone again. I I can't.
2: At this point, you probably think your life's over. Yeah. You know, going through your young mind.
1: And um, didn't help. Like obviously, higher power. My entire future that I've thought of for the last, you know, six months is completely built up around him. Um, so we go into the office, uh, which is in downstairs. It's next to the garage, so that way we could hear her if she comes home early. Again, and we start talking, and I'm like, okay, so we don't have any more time to run. So can we, can we kill ourselves? like the plan was, because this is the last resort. You want to talk about last resort? That That's the last resort. We're here. Mm. And um, he was hesitant, and I pushed him because I didn't I didn't see another way. And obviously, I'd been suicidal for since I was six, so it's not like it was a new solution, quote, like for me. For sure. If you want a way out, that's the way to do it. And... Um, so he's like, OK, you know, I finally agreed. He's like, OK, but, you know, when, where, how? And I was like, OK, well, if we want to be together for all eternity, this is how we have to do it. Keep it First of all, 14. Second of all, I've been living in my head, dissociated, um, living in like fantasy versions of reality to cope with my reality for all of my life. Um, and then tie into that like a, almost a year of drug use you know, you just, yeah. <laughs> you know, um, but I believed that, um, if we died in a certain place where we didn't have any bad memories that would tie us, our souls there after we were dead. And if we died on our anniversary, then we would be together for all eternity, like past death. So it was a Thursday or our, um, anniversary was that Monday. And
0: anniversary like what you guys were together for like three months right six six yeah. okay yeah so much more yeah, no. i mean i'm not trying to <laughs> minimize i'm just trying to get oh, the no, picture no. here so yeah six months together and that's the anniversary okay
1: yeah so it's
0: very it's very childish like yeah. okay this is our anniversary
1: yes yeah, extremely You're such a 14 year old exactly <laughs> <laughs> right yeah oh god um yeah so we um and he was like okay. well how are we going to kill ourselves and mm. i'm like uh, rat poison easiest thing to get a hold of you know it has arsenic in it it'll kill you um, which it won't by the way mm. but um, that's what I thought and I'm like okay well he's like well where are we supposed to kill ourselves like if we can't we can't do it in Eldorado Hills obviously because we both have bad memories here like well the only places I've ever been to before in my life where I haven't had bad memories are San Francisco and Salem Massachusetts he was like well we're not crossing the country so we decide on San Francisco. And so we have to, you know, kill ourselves on Monday. And this is this is what's going on in my brain. You know, oh, so we can't... Um, if we leave today to kill ourselves on Monday, the cops will find us before we're able to kill ourselves on Monday. But if we don't, like, that, that evidence was enough that they're probably going to issue a warrant for you within the next 48 hours. So you're you're gonna get locked up so it, we have to leave now but we can't leave now because that will give them too much time to find us before we're ev- actually able to. at
0: this point i'm i'm kind of so at this point your mom already handed over the journal to the police how come yep. they didn't go get his ass right away
1: i i don't know interesting i don't know um did
0: she really do that yeah okay yeah because I know later on in the story, that gets out, but mm-hmm. I was just curious. Maybe she was just doing another scare tactic, manip- you know, manipulate mm-hmm. to get you worked up or something.
1: No, she... But that's
0: really fucking nuts that these fucking guys didn't go pick his ass up right away. The mm-hmm. moment... Because that seems odd to me. Well... Carry on. <laughs> Carry on, sister. So... That's how fucking my brain works, yeah. you know what I mean? Fucking hamster will.
1: That's right. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Um. So I... This is, this is the conundrum. So Cut. we have to leave now, but we can't leave now. Got it. Um, but, you know, if we leave in time so that way they don't arrest you, how else can we make sure that they don't find us before Monday? Well, he's 19. He is an adult. He can go anywhere he wants and nobody can really say shit about it. The only person who's going to stop me from leaving is my mom. So how can we make sure that she doesn't call the cops as soon as she realizes that I'm gone? And to this day, I do not remember who said the idea first. But I have just settled it with myself that it came from me. Just because even if he was the first one to say it, I was the one to agree with it. And he, um, at that point, you know, uh, we thought we heard something from the garage. He goes, I go to go check it out. I come back. Didn't even realize he had it until that point. Come back through the office door and he comes out from behind it with a katana raised above his head. That sounds really weird but he collected katanas and other knives and sharp implements. So I mean it's yeah. not too far fetched. <laughs> yeah. We get it. <laughs> <laughs> so I I you know jolted back and I asked him like what are you doing? And he was like, "Oh, I I thought you were your mom." And I don't know if that gave him the idea or if that gave me the idea, but from that point it was the way that we're going to stop my mom from telling anybody that we've left to go commit suicide is to kill her. And we stayed in the office and we worked out what we were going to do. We were going to do it the next night, Friday night. And, um, you know, how we were going to do it and, um, what we're going to do afterwards, so the, the plan was, I was supposed to take one of her, um, her meds, I was going to drug her with it, and then, um, he was going to come over, and we would kill her together, and then we would leave and go to San Francisco, stay holed up in a hotel or motel or whatever for a couple days, and then on Monday morning, um, At the time that we had gotten together. We were going to kill ourselves. And. So he leaves. um, And. The next couple hours for me are complete blank. The next thing I remember is my mom coming home. um, Apologizing to me for turning over my diary. And. Me telling her. I understood. And. That she was just trying to be a good mom. And it's so crazy to me because in light of what I was planning, you know, you would think that I would just hate her. I would, you know, whatever. She's the bane of my existence, you know, something. But I genuinely, it was like two completely different personalities. Are uh, two completely different mindsets. I did understand why she was doing what she was doing. She was actually trying to be a good mom. But for me, it was killing me. And so, you know, sh- we went to the store. I didn't even realize she bought some alcohol. She got me some cake and came home. I, she went upstairs. I play video games till about 10 uh walked up the stairs and up until this point uh, my mom had been telling me that she was gonna be sober you know she was gonna stop drinking it was also during that month that I finally started calling her out every time Mm. I just tell her she was drunk and I'd treat her like a piece of crap um so when I walked up the stairs, I saw her TV on, and I know she never leaves the TV on him unless she's drunk. I poked my head in the room, and I saw the glass on her nightstand. Just to double check, I went over, I smelled it. It was alcohol, and everything in me got triggered. It wasn't until that moment that now I was mad. Now I was angry. Because up until that, I was in a panic. I was scared. I was doing what, in my twisted mind, I thought I had to do for me to be okay. But at that moment, that's when I got angry. And it was, you know, I went right into my room. I called Boston. I started going off about how she was drunk. And then I... No, I was the one that said, well, we're not going to get a better chance than this. She's drunk now. She might not be drunk tomorrow. So why don't we do it tonight? Mm. So it was my job to drug her. So he told me, you know, go down stairs or he didn't tell me, but, you know, like, so you're going to do this. And I'm mm. like, yeah, I'm going to do it. So I, I went Back downstairs, I went through the medicine cabinet, tried to find the the Vicodin that I knew that she had been using. Couldn't find it. Tried looking in all the other pill bottles; they were all empty. It's a big surprise. Um, and so, again, fourteen year old mine I st- to this day I can't explain it. I went and I got a uh, vitamin. This is the only thing that was actually in a bottle. Um chopped it in half, ground it up, and put it in our glass. And the only thing that I can say to explain that is that in my head up until that point, I didn't really understand people and I didn't understand how the world worked. It just never seemed to really make logical sense to me or not my kind of sense,
3: mm-hmm.
1: which I was kind of living in my own head most of the time, so it's probably why. But I had this unconscious belief that if I set kind of like a formula of actions into place and I had my desired result on the other side of that equal sign as long as I followed that formula to the t or as close as humanly possible what I wanted would happen So it's almost like a spell you get all the ingredients you do it just right it's going to happen and that was the same exact thing. So if I do everything as close as possible, so even though it's not a drug, but I'm still crushing something up and I'm putting it in a drink, it's it's close enough that this is still going to work out. It's still going to come out the way that I want it to, that he and I are going to die and we're going to be together for all eternity. So, um, you know, I put it in a drink, I wait a couple more hours, he comes over, um, we're outside for like 30 minutes smoking cigarettes. And finally he's like, Hey, if, man, if we're going to do this, we should probably go inside. So we go inside, creep up the stairs, stops on one of the landings, turns around, asks me, did you drug her? I said, yeah, I did. Cause obviously I don't want to tell him no. Yeah. I don't want him to, to be mad at me because right. I didn't do it. And I also didn't want to admit out loud that I didn't follow the formula cause that would break the spell. Hmm. Um. And so, you know, we walk up into her room. It's a double door, but one door's shut. He walked in before me, and he had a knife from his job. And I, Josh Owens. Jesus
2: Christ! Okay. Right at the, fucking, the I, mean, I mean, how does that <laughs>
0: even have the fucking things off? I'm so sorry.
2: Like the whole part of the story that <laughs> the phone call could come in at is right now.
0: Jesus Christ. I that just... was
1: fantastic. That was like a horror movie when the <laughs> somebody else's phone goes off right at the horrible part.
0: Jesus Christ, how did that happen?
2: Sitting over here at the edge of my seat and this phone rings like that, man. Oh my god, the
0: fucking thing. Do not disturb, son of a bitch. All right. So, anyways, we're back. It's a double door. <laughs>
1: Um, and so he had his knife from work, and I had pulled a knife out of our knife block, and it was a, it was a paring knife. Obviously, not in my right mind. Like, what do you expect to do with a, with a paring knife? It's right. like two inches long. But like I said, like I, I was committing all of the actions, but it wasn't reality to me. I know right. that now, but. He, goes, he went into the room first, and we had a nightlight that was in the, the hallway outside our door. And I just remember stopping at her door, and I felt like my brain got washed over with white noise. And I couldn't think. I was just staring down at my shadow, and I couldn't move. I just, I could not, it was like a barrier. That just wiped all thought from my brain. I could not. I couldn't think around it. I didn't. I couldn't. So I didn't. And I moved and I sat down on the floor with my back against that closed door. And I waited in a kind of haze. And then I kind of like woke back up and I realized it was quiet. And so I peeked around the door and I saw him standing over her practicing like stabbing movements. And I went back again. Again, that whole wash of just like this isn't real, dissociating from my body. And then I started hearing the the noises, the shuffling, the her waking up her realizing what was happening and who it was and she said his name twice and she told him you know I won't I won't and he yelled at her you won't what and Then she said my name, twice, and I couldn't listen anymore, so I put my hands over my ears, and I curled up in the fetal position, and I just started humming to drown out the noise. And I didn't move until I felt him walk past me and stand in front of me.
0: (sighs) So fucking heavy. So heavy. So fucking heavy. So that was, so it was done.
1: Yeah. And um, I find it so heavily ironic that there was blood on his hands and his pants I don't really remember seeing any on his chest and there was only one drop on his face and it was a teardrop right next to his eye Mm. and the first thing I thought was God's marked us as murderers because that's the tattoo you get in prison when you've killed someone So I, yeah, um, obviously you know he couldn't touch anything. So I went and I got my bag out of the room and we had to shut the the windows and the blinds. Uh, but he didn't want me seeing her. Uh-huh. So he went inside. He turned on the light and he took one of the blankets and he held it up as a screen, so I could move around the room to shut the windows and the sc- and the blinds. And turn on the AC without seeing her. And then closed the door, locked it, left, got in the car, went back to his house. You know, burned our clothes, got in the shower. Um, and uh, next day, because we weren't supposed to have left yet. We um, acted like everything was normal. We went for that shopping list. We went and got food. Went and bought rat poison and hair dye. And um, went and hung out with like, so, like uh, some of our friends, especially with the purpose of getting high. We went and just p- bought a crap ton of drugs.
2: And nobody knows what had happened.
1: Nope.
2: And w- with you guys doing this, did you guys... Um, in your head, did you guys have the, the thought that you were going to get away with it? Or or did, in your head, did you think eventually you guys were going to get caught or uh, you were going to end up committing suicide?
1: Yeah, so it didn't really didn't m- matter. Didn't matter. Got it. Like, we were just, the, the countermeasures that we were taking, like, it sounds like we were trying to, like, get away with it. We weren't trying to get away with anything. It was just.
0: I think it's just giving yourself more time, right?
1: Yeah, it was. It was so more the time.
0: AC, the AC was to have everything cool in the house and yep. the window. Okay, understood.
1: So you know, the longer it takes for someone to find out what's happened, the longer it it they'll start look it, before they start what looking for this? us um that was thursday night friday day was when we went and bought all this stuff and got a bunch of drugs
0: because monday is the anniversary and that was the day you're gonna commit suicide with him
1: yeah um met up with god um got a whole bunch of drugs got you know coke ecstasy weed and honestly like i want to say from like eight o'clock Because we finally, it it took a minute to get it for some reason. Um, But I think maybe from like 6, 6 p.m. that night until Monday, I was just completely, I was loaded the entire time. Um, I, I smoked some weed with God. We ended up telling him that night because he was our best friend. It was like the three of us. We were a triangle. You always found us everywhere. Um, And I felt like he deserved to know why we were just going to be gone and then dead. Hmm. So we told him. And then that at midnight, we dropped him off back at his house. Then we went to San Francisco.
0: What did God say?
1: He just... He's just asked, like, why? Like, why did we go to that length? And then when, because Boston is the one that told him pretty much everything, um, like, recounted all of it. And there were a few parts here and there yeah. where I, like, butted in. Um, like, I think at one point he asked, like, well, how many times did you stab her? And Boston gave, like, he said, like, 20. And I told him no. No, that's that's wrong. That can't be right. And what's so sad is that in my head I'm like, there's no way because that that many times means overkill. Overkill means rage. Rage means you were angry. And if you're angry, that means that you did it because you wanted to do it and you hated her, not because you you had to and you loved me and you wanted to commit suicide with me. That's how sick my head was. Hmm. And so I corrected him, and then he just agreed with me. How many times? And what did was he
0: the number? You? Yeah, yeah I
1: number? didn't find out till later that it was it was 22. Wow.
2: I got a question. <clears throat> so, after that happened, did you feel like you were able to breathe? I mean, cuz of, you know, something like that, you know. I mean, obviously you're going through a lot and it's it's like you're you're trying to like get that out of your life. And I imagine that You know, after it happened, you know, it was like almost like almost like a sense of relief, if that even makes any sense.
1: It does. And it wasn't. I wouldn't say relief. It wasn't that happy.
2: Right. That might not be the right word, but I think you understand.
1: Yeah, it was he got in the shower um, when he got in the shower afterwards. I was sitting in his room and I remember just staring at his window and I just started crying. And I don't mean like sobbing, crying. I just mean like tears just started leaking out of my eyes and I couldn't stop them. I don't even remember thinking anything. They just started and they didn't stop until the moment he walked in the room. And they just vanished. I wanted to be happy because I got to be with him. Um, But even later after I'd gotten arrested there wasn't there was definitely, you know, shame, guilt and horror over what i'd done. And at the same time, you know, i wanted to miss her. And there were a lot of times where i would say, you know, like i i miss her. But i didn't miss her. It's like i missed i miss what a mom should have been and i missed like how I wish she would have been able to be in my life as the person that she was because she had the ability to be this just this amazing person and um but I couldn't miss the entirety of her because we just had this really horrible toxic relationship um but yeah so um and
0: so when he got out of the shower, how how much longer were you guys, you know, you know, there before you bounced to San Francisco?
1: Um, so that was Thursday night. We spent Friday still in um, El Dorado Hills. Uh, Friday night at uh, midnight, we set off for for San Francisco. Uh, Saturday, Sunday, and then Monday, we were in a hotel in San Francisco. Monday, you know, we made our, our calls and wrote our, Goodbye letters and mixed a rat poison with some cake and milk. Okay. Downed it. Didn't do anything. It gave me a stomach ache. He didn't eat as much as I did, so he wasn't really affected. Um, and then woke up Monday, like did all the rest of the drugs. Um, woke up Monday morning and, you know, we're, we're awake. We're alive. Right. So what do we do? I started panicking because I was like, no, that's 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 not how this was supposed to happen. I'm supposed to be dead. I started kind of freaking out like I could feel the panic start in my chest. And so I asked him for the razors that I knew that he kept on hand. Um, and I tried using one of those to cut open my arm. Didn't work. It was too dull. Like it made it made definitely make cuts, but it wasn't like. I could have sat there and like really ground into it. It wouldn't have, wouldn't have done anything. Um, And at that point I was just all panicked out. It just felt like this. I don't know if you've ever felt like this hopeless whoosh where it's just like everything that was in you, that was driving you is just gone. You kind of feel like a husk. Yeah. That's how I felt. I'm just, I couldn't look backwards. Because that means I would have gonna had to have looked at what I just did. And I can't look forward. Because I don't want to look forward. There wasn't supposed to be a future. And so I was just stuck in a horrible present. And, and he asked me. You know. What are we going to do? I was like. Well. We can't stay here. You know. So. And we knew that the the cops already knew they were already looking for us um, so we left the hotel and we just started walking. You can't go north because that's where you know uh the crime happened, and so we just started walking south
2: If you don't mind me interrupting how was uh how was she discovered
1: like uh, so um this is actually one of my more there's a lot of things that are horrible about this, but um, my mom's boss uh, called for a welfare check on her and the police called my grandpa. <laughs> and this is, keep in mind, this is the the weekend after Father's Day. Mm. This is the mo- this Monday after Father's Day. And... So they had to call him and ask him if he had a key to the house. So he let them in. And they went and they checked in the house and they found her upstairs. Then they had to turn around and, and tell my papa what they found. Brutal. Yeah.
0: Brutal. What's your relationship with him?
1: Um first couple years obviously um understandably it was very rocky they didn't want anything to do with me you know obviously granted you yeah. know um but amazingly, you know after I got to prison and I got my head out of my own ass and I actually apologized to them um there were a lot of reasons that kept me from saying it for years, even, you know, it was just, there was so much shame there. And what does sorry do? What does sorry do for something like that? It doesn't mean shit. So I just, it's almost like it got stuck in my throat because I knew how worthless it was. Mm. Right. And it, it took going to prison for me to finally write that to them. I said, I want to say sorry, but it doesn't mean shit. So I don't know what else to say.
0: Yeah, we're. I imagine, <laughs> so you guys are walking in San Francisco um how much longer are you guys walking, and where are you walking to, and how long before you get stopped?
1: Um started walking like on Monday, and then on Wednesday is when they picked us up, and we we're just walking, so we slept outside a couple of nights um
0: so they found you in San Francisco, basically.
1: San Bruno, okay um and uh picked us up, you know. Booked us whole nine yards. Um, tried interviewing us, obviously. Lied through my teeth. Um, went to juvie. Um, back up in, in, in El Dorado County. They transferred me back up. And then the whole court pros- process started.
2: Yeah, so that was that was my next question is, when you guys get arrested, you know, What's your guys' story? You know, do you guys just say that you guys are just out on a little weekend journey, or
1: I said that we ran, like we ran away. So I, you know, had no idea, no knowledge of my mom being dead. We just ran away, right? Um,
2: Which, I mean, kind of contradicts the story, to right? A, to a certain point. right. Well, they
0: all well, and also they have the journal and everything else too I'm so I'm sure that played right, into it right that's
2: yeah. what I mean it's probably not too hard to yeah. f- put the puzzle pieces yeah. together
1: yeah and then also like we'd mailed letters like ah yeah that's to, right you for, did you did uh, you know goodbye letters and things like that so it's not like
0: <laughs> why did you stop what, what made you stop trying to kill yourselves like why didn't you jump off a bridge or jump off a building or run whatever
1: i I think I just I felt so hopeless and it was this belief that if we just if we just followed this formula and we did everything the way that we were supposed to that it was going to work. And now the formula's gone. It didn't work. So even if we killed ourselves, we're not going to be together for eternity. There's no point. It's just Worthless. Everything we just did was worthless. There's nothing that will make it better. It was just complete. Paralyzing. Hopelessness. There's no point to anything. You know, mm. we just walk because, you know. It's moment by moment. You know, you're not really thinking about. Oh, well, when they catch us, this is, you know, da, 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 da. it was just OK, what do we do right now? Um, so, you know, we got arrested and told our stories. He asked for a lawyer right right away. Um, I played, like, I didn't know anything. Um, and so the whole court process began, and that's in June, um, over the next couple months, you know, they took me to a fitness hearing. So fitness hearing for juvenile court is when they determine whether or not you are fit to be tried as a juvenile, or whether or not you should be moved into adult court to be tried as an adult. In the state of California, um, back then, the minimum age that you could be tried as an adult was 14. Now it's 16. But, um, so at this fitness hearing, they have certain criteria, and if you fail three out of the five, you get tried as an adult. And um, I got found unfit.
0: You failed with flying colors? Oh, yeah. What were some of the questions?
1: Um, well, like one of them was the heinousness of the crime. Mm-hmm. The other one was criminal sophistication, degree of criminal sophistication. Um, uh prior attempts at rehabilitation. So if you'd been to juvie before, if you'd been, you know, was there any proof that you could be rehabilitated or that you couldn't? Um, like previous record, like do you have a record of violence or, you know, whatever. Um, and there's one more I can't remember. But um, yeah, the so I failed, you know. Um, and then I got moved into adult court November seventeenth, so the day before my birthday. Um, and then, so now that it was an adult court. My, uh, I call him Stephen now. I don't call him Boston. Stephen's his real name. Mm-hmm. Um, Stephen went to his attorney, and um, I guess they worked out a defense once they realized that I was going to be tried with him. So we were tried as co-defendants, so we were tried together instead of separately. And um, he came out to the press with his defense, which was, I was schizophrenic, and I'm the one that killed my mom. He had no knowledge of it. He showed up afterwards. And the reason why I don't remember doing it myself was because I, I was schizophrenic and I had alternate personalities my alternate personality is the one that killed her.
3: Okay.
2: And how did how did you feel? I
0: was about to say you fucking <laughs> motherfucker. Yeah, I know. what a
2: piece of shit, right? And then you talked to this dude 5 years later in prison, right? Or up to 5 years? Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, we uh, in juvenile and YA no contact, right?
2: So it was. They don't, I it mean, typically they don't let let you write your co-defendants, at least from my experience.
1: In prison, they do because if you have an open case, and your co-defendants, then technically you guys are allowed to talk to each other about, about your the defense. Case. Yeah, correct. So, um, yeah, it was literally a mixture. I think it was four letters. Five years after we had gotten incarcerated, and that was it.
2: So when you found out that he had tried to, you know, put everything on you,
1: um, did up you just
2: kind of just take it and well, just say, fuck it?
1: No. Up until that point, I had been trying to defend him. Like, when I went on the stand when I was at my fitness hearing, like, I can't even tell you how many times I asked my attorney, are you sure that nothing I say can be used against him? It was like, yeah. I'm like, okay, then I'm going to lie through my teeth, you know. Right. Um, but at that point, my attorney came up to me and he said, okay, look, I have been an attorney for multiple couples that are co-defendants. And I'm telling you right now, the guys that really care about the women that they are with, they will take everything. They never blame them or they at least share. They don't talk. So this guy he now knows you're getting tried as an adult. His attorney knows what that means. You are potentially going to receive life in prison. 25 years to life plus two special circumstances. He knows that. And he's putting everything on you. Like, he doesn't care about you. So you need to start thinking about yourself.
0: And this is, you're 14. Yeah. You're 14, correct? Just, just turned 15. Th- I'm sorry. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> you just turned 15.
1: Yeah. <sighs> So, you know, finally, finally got it through my head. So I, um, I did. I contacted the DA and I told him I'd testify against Stephen in return for um, second degree murder. 15 to life. No special circumstances. Um, First time I went and I told them what happened, still lied through my teeth. A huge liar, you know, lied about everything um went back to my cell because at the time i was very pretty heavily christian went back to my cell started reading my bible and there's a psalm that says you know lying is an abomination to god a false witness is an abomination to god and i was like okay thank you hear you got it contacted my attorney the next day told him to contact the da and tell them i lied i want to tell the truth They came back to me and they said, well, it's a good thing you did that because we didn't believe anything you said. And if you had waited one more day for us to tell you we weren't going to give you your deal, we would not give you a second chance. But the fact that you're coming back to us and telling us that you lied, we're going to give you a second chance. So they did. And I finally told the truth. I got to tell you, for, you know, up until that point, 15 years of being a bold face you know, red, caught red handed liar doesn't. I mean, there you could be a 0.0001% chance that I could get away with something by lying and I would take it. Mm-hmm. But sitting in that room and telling them the truth for the first time in my life, being honest about something that I knew I was going to get punished for, I had to talk through like black crowding in on my vision. My heart was pounding out of my chest. I was sweating. Like it felt like I was going through like DTs from lying just to tell the truth. And I will be honest and say that I was still in an entirely selfish and self-serving mindset because when they asked me, why did you want to tell the truth now? My response wasn't, oh, I want to honor my mom or I want to do the right thing. Um, It was if I lie and I don't get my deal, then that's on me. If I tell the truth and I don't get my deal, then I did everything I could to get to do the right thing. And that's what matters. It was in still entirely, completely selfish. Mm. I didn't tell the truth for any other reason than to be selfish. And um, But I got my deal. I testified. Um, and he got lwop so life without the possibility of parole and uh, we got sentenced i got sent to ya went to ya for about a year and some months that was the the last time um i tried to commit suicide was when i was in ya and then 18 years day after my 18th birthday got shipped to chowchilla
0: and that's where you spent all your time Mm -hmm. so how many years did you do
1: in total, I did almost 14.
0: 14 years.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And you were sentenced to 15? If 15 to life?
1: 15 to life, yeah. Okay. So, as a, a lifer, you are able to do things like as long as you're positively programming, you're not getting any write ups, um, you know, doing things like going to self help groups, rehabilitative groups, giving back to your community any way that you can, going to school. You can get credits that take time off of your base term. So all that that means is you get to go to board sooner. It's not a pass out. It just means you get to go before the board of parole hearings a couple years earlier, possibly, depending right. how much time you get off.
0: Right. So 15 and a half years you did.
1: Um, f- Like four, like almost 14.
0: Yeah, yeah 14. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm j- still lost in the sauce here.
1: <laughs> yeah. Like three three months shy of fourteen years.
0: Man, so what do you? What is your thought process now? I mean, do you have a lot of regret? I mean, do you?
1: Oh yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, in no shape or or form did my mom deserve what I did to her. If. I can't say a lot of people are like, well, if you could go back and change it, would you? It's like, of course. What kind of question is that? Yes, of course I would go back and change it. I can't tell you that I wouldn't have grown up to be a horrible human being and probably would have hurt a lot of people still. um, It it wouldn't have changed who I was. But if I could take that action back, yeah, absolutely.
0: Right. Yeah, because I'm sure a lot of people listening to that or to this would would probably want to hear that, you know, that you do have regret and remorse and, you know, you're not just some fucking evil person, but, you know, on the other side of things, too, I mean, from 1 to 13, you're pretty much tormented your entire life. You know, it doesn't give it a, a okay for what happened by any means, but, you know, awful, awful people do awful things, and your mom did some fucking pretty shitty things to you growing up and um man i don't know your story's fucking wild it's fucking powerful it's a fucking powerful story
2: <clears throat> it is uh such a trip you know that you know speaking to you prior to even doing this podcast it's like there's almost like a like a weird fascination you know that story you know it's like it's like a weird fascination you know what you went through you know but it's, it's such a fucking tragedy, you know what I mean? Mm. It, it really is such a tragedy, you know? And and the things that we go through as kids, you know, I mean, it really does have a strong impact on us, you know? And we make decisions, you know, that, uh, you know, can impact our whole life, you know? Yeah. And we're not even fully aware of it. We're acting out on, on emotions and, uh, you know, just... I don't even know how to explain it, you know? I mean, in those moments, you felt like your life was over and you didn't want to live anymore and you didn't want to deal with any of the bullshit anymore. And for you, that was like a rational decision, you yeah. know? Which is, you know, truly not the case, but it's like, you know, we can, we can fix these ideas in our head and, and I don't even know how to explain it, man. It's just such a trip, you know, the things that we go through and positions that we end up in, and, uh, I mean, ultimately, I mean, it really does, it really does kind of fall back on, on what you went through as a kid, you know, I mean, it does not make anything that happened okay or justifiable, but it's like, you know, Mm -hmm. um, it, it shows that, that, you know, having a healthy family and a healthy, uh, relationship with your kids, like, it really does matter, you know?
3: Mm
0: -hmm. Mm. That's what I said with... Earlier in the show, it's like you, you have a chance now to, it's like a, a complete do-over of your family history, you know?
1: Yeah. I, I mean, parents make mistakes. You definitely don't have to be a perfect parent, you know, right. to, to, to be there for your kid. I just have to just being there emotionally and then not abusing them. Right. You know, being that safe place for them so that way when they come home from a world that is definitely dangerous and hard and hurts that they have one safe place that they can go to, and parents make that for their kids. And if they don't have that, they'll find it somewhere else, right? Whether that's in friends or boyfriends or drugs, you know, or in mentors. It, it's just really kind of what they grab a hold of first, absolutely, or what grabs a hold of them.
0: Yeah. So, and I know I know that we discussed this before the show, um, but you know there is a lot of media to this story, right? So. Oh, yeah. I mean, your your story could be seen on you said Forty Eight Hours twenty twenty the, and you said one of them was called Ro- Romeo and Juliet, right?
1: Uh, I think so, or right. I I can't really remember. I didn't I didn't make a study of them. Sure, I, you know, sure. All of the snapped, you know, snapped, snap killer couple, snap killer kids, A right. um, couple international stories um, covered it. Um, my grandparents uh, contracted with Forty Eight Hours. Um, I did a interview with 2020, Um, like, the first time my grandparents actually came to visit me um, after I'd gotten sentenced. Uh, They came with 48 hours.
0: Did they know the the history that your mom, you know, did to you during those times, or did they not?
1: They didn't know the extent of it. Uh Um, I... After having conversations with them afterward, like, for instance, in my probation report, my papa is on record and saying that my mom was never an alcoholic and she was never abusive to me. Mm. However, my grandparents know that she was abusive to me because I was taken away from her when I was four for physical abuse. Mm. Um, And I was put in their home, you know, for almost six months. Right. So, you know, and they knew she was, uh, had a problem with drinking because, um, you know, before you know, Stephen entered my life, my, or maybe it was after, um, I know, yeah, it was after Stephen was the one that actually got me to go to my grandparents' house when I couldn't go to him. Uh, When my mom was drinking, uh, they asked me what was happening, and I told them, and my grandfather actually came to our house one day, went through our recyclables, found all of the empty uh, wine bottles in the trash, And uh, emailed my mom and told her, you know, you're an alcoholic. You need to get some help. Um, He doesn't know that I know about that email. She read it to me. Um, But, you know, denial is a really, really powerful thing. And I know that my mom's relationship with my family was pretty bad. You know, she resented them for most of my life. And I had to defend them uh, to her for most of my life. Mm-hmm. I had to convince her to go see them, to spend time with them because I wanted to spend time with my family. Until again, therapy around 11, 12, that started changing and she started being much more accepting and understanding of just where they were, meet them where they're at kind of thing. said I then I got bitter. Um but like my whole life I had been the one to defend my mom, uh, defend them to my mom. And My family, you know, told me point blank they didn't like my mom. My grandfather told me to my face, you know, we don't like your mom. We don't like being around her. And then when I went to trial, it was we spent so much time around her. We loved her so much. She was such a big part of our lives. And I'm like, you don't know anything about her, you know.
0: Complete denial.
1: Yeah. Yeah, you said it. And I used that anger to fuel having to look at the damage I did to them. Um. It was like a, my own personal smoke screen. If I could be angry at them for you know, them outcasting my mom and waiting until she was dead to tell her things like, "I love you and I'm proud of you, then I didn't have to look at how much I hurt them. And it, like I said, it wasn't until I was like eighteen um, that I finally dropped that smoke screen and I was got down and honest with myself and realized. That's why I'm holding on to that anger. It has nothing to do with my childhood. It's just because I don't want to admit how badly I've hurt them.
3: Yeah,
0: right. So the so the 14 years you had plenty of time to work on yourself inside, right? So when did you when did that? 18 was, was that when some things clicked over and and kind of switched around on you?
1: Well, I mean, turned
0: a corner, I should say.
1: Kinda. I mean, when I was 15, it kind of started when I was 15. Little bits and pieces. Um, when I got to juvenile hall is the first time anybody ever told me I was manipulative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Been manipulating people my whole life. I didn't know another way to communicate with human beings other than to be manipulative. I didn't even know it was called being manipulative. That was just how I communicated. And it wasn't until I had CEOs that were watching my every move, sit me down and tell me you're a manipulative little bitch that I was like, oh, well, what does that mean? How am I manipulative? And then at first I was really defensive and then I finally, you know, oh, that's manipulative. Why is that wrong? And gradually started learning how to, you know, have any kind of relationship with another person without manipulation being a part of it. Um, Realizing I didn't have an emotional identity. Um, I, up until that point, was like my mom's emotional caretaker. I was responsible for moderating her emotions so I couldn't have any of my own I wasn't allowed to um it was just always in response of being hyperactive and hypersensitive to hers and then mine would counterbalance hers and so it wasn't until I was in juvie that I realized that oh I don't know how I actually feel about anything all of my emotions are pretty much um concoctions of who I'm around um, I'm going to feel how this person would normally feel because I want to be accepted by them because that serves me. Hype extremely codependent, you know. Um, but then realizing, you know, I don't know how I feel about anything. I don't know what makes me sad. I don't know what makes me angry, really. I don't know what makes me happy. And then kind of going flat for almost, you know, three years, four years after that, gradually starting to rediscover what I actually feel when it's not being clouded by codependency and drugs and then when I was about 16 I started you know making a practice of telling the truth I didn't want to be a liar anymore so I started telling the truth and like initially I started doing all of the right things because I didn't want to feel the consequences I just don't want I don't want the bad things that happen from doing bad things So I'm just going to stop doing bad things still totally selfish motives. You know, I'm changing, but I'm doing it for me. (laughs) You know, it has nothing to do with being a better human being or making amends. Um, I just don't want to have to deal with the shit anymore. And then a little bit further, gradually 18, I, um, went to prison. I went to this group in prison, um, called life scripting and, uh, they teach you this, uh, it's um, pressure point therapy that actually, um, I wouldn't say removes, but it separates your automatic nervous system response from your thoughts. So when you think things, your automatic nervous system responds by increasing your heart rate, uh, making your palms sweaty. Like it gives you a bodily or physiological response to your emotions or your thoughts, right? Mm-hmm. If you can separate those two, and it's, it's like almost like a positive feedback loop. They they feed each other. So the more you think it, the more you feel it in your body. The more you feel it in your body, the more you think it. And it just spirals. And so when you separate the two, your brain will actually start to let go of that loop. It'll start to let go of those emotions, let go of those thoughts. It won't be so obsessive anymore because it's not getting the the body's feedback. And... Up until that point, um, when I actually started to allow myself to feel remorse, uh, I couldn't cry. I still couldn't cry. And I uh, would punish myself for being subhuman and being a piece of shit and not being able to cry over what I did by forcing myself to relive my worst memories. They call it psychological self-mutilation. Um, just so I could cry, so I could feel a little bit human. And... Um, Because at least I could punish myself enough over what I did. Mm. And it wasn't until I went to that group and I cleared those memories that I had been using. Because I'm like, you know what? This isn't healthy. I can't keep doing this anymore. But it's like an addiction. And I'm not going to do this to myself anymore. So I cleared them. So that way I wouldn't have that gut, heart-wrenching, horrible pain response to those memories anymore. And what ended up happening was by the time I was done, I was bawling on the floor for about half an hour straight. It was like it opened up a door and it wasn't. Now I know is that we're kind of like turtles. The more you hurt us, the more deeper we go into our shells. So the more I was hurting myself, I was actually reinforcing the um, armor that was keeping me from feeling. So when I finally removed the weapon and the pain that I was using, there was no more reason for my emotions to go into hiding. And they were able to have safely come out because I wasn't hurting myself anymore. And then from that point forward, it was like I came back to life. And I say that pretty uh, authentically. Like my first year in prison, I was 18 You know, there's a lot of and they call me a baby lifer and a lot of baby lifers get swooped up by drug dealers. They, you know, you get all kinds of shenanigans because they're young and they're stupid and people know that they can take advantage of them. And believe me, if somebody had come up to me and handed me any kind of drug, I would have done it. For sure. Absolutely. Take me out. (laughs) Um, But nobody did. And for the first year, it was because I was insane to most people. I didn't talk. I said maybe a total of five words a day. People thought I was on Thorazine. I was just that completely out of it. I was in such a deep depression. Like I could sit on my bed and stare at the wall for two hours straight and not move. And it scared a lot of the people around me. They just thought I was crazy. So nobody messed with me. Uh, Nobody invited me to go do stupid things. So I was in prison long enough that the people that actually gave a damn about my life and wanted me to do the right thing other lifers and lwops kind of came around the bend and were like okay you're under our wing now we're gonna and like people that were kind of questionable when I started coming like to life and talking to other people um the lifers some of them would come behind me and they would go talk to those people and basically say you know she's a baby lifer she has a chance of getting out one day stay the fuck away from her And it's because of that and then them showing me how to program, them showing me what groups were, them showing me how to do my time responsibly that I was able to move into an honor dorm and I started going to groups because it was something to do and then eventually it was something that I enjoyed doing. And then the first day that I walked into a CODA group and then all of my shit made sense, that's when, like, set off this complete uh, addiction to, to groups, to self-help, to rehabilitation, and, and to recovery. And it was like, now I'm starving. Mm. I'm starving. I need as much of it as I can get. I need to understand why I am the way I am, why I was the way that I was. I need to get better. Um, I need to be better. I need to be a better person. Uh, not just for um, my mom and my family and everybody else that I hurt, because it's a very, very long list, um, but also just for myself, and it sent me off and running. I I did every group I could get my hands on, um, and then Within a couple of years, I was facilitating groups. I became a part of a couple of different organizations that are in prison. They're called LTags. They're like nonprofits within the that are inmate ran for inmates, like Juvenile Offenders Committee, Beyond Incarceration Program, and then um, later on, uh, the Youth Diversion Program. So I was a mentor to kids who would come in the prison, and then the dog program where I uh, trained service dogs. So, like, uh, facilitating groups that focus on victim impact, sobriety, codependency, um, also ACA was a big one for me, adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families. That, that changed my life in a whole other way, even years after I was in recovery. Um, and I, I start my recovery time um, about a year After I got into prison, not because I was using drugs while I was in juvie or YA, but because I had manipulated the system um, when I was in juvie to get put on psych meds. Uh, I lied to them. and I told them that I had depression and anxiety, which I ended up getting diagnosed with later. But um, it wasn't until I was in prison that I was like. I finally stopped taking the meds because I didn't want to feel anything like I was using them appropriately. I wasn't abusing them, but my mindset in taking them was addictive. Like I was taking them for addictive, like an addicted person's mentality. I want to take this because I don't want to feel anything. Mm. I just wanted to fix it. I need an escape. I don't want to deal with this. I'm going to talk with my therapist about reducing my level of medication so I can learn how to deal with my shit. I want to feel I want to to understand my life and I want to feel my life and I want to learn how to handle it. I don't want to run away anymore. And then gradually, just for me, I was able to get off of my medication completely and learn how to, you know, actually use healthy coping skills and to be in recovery and to handle life on life's terms.
0: What's your clean date?
1: Um, I don't know the exact day, but um, I set it in 2012 um, in June because that's my um, June 11th is my crime day. So I just set it in 2012 because I know that's when um, I, I changed over my mindset about my medication. Um, so I put it in June 21st of 2012.
0: Wow. Wow. Mine's uh, June. Mine's June eleventh of fifteen.
1: Mm.
0: And your birthday's eleven eighteen.
1: Yep.
0: My wife's eleven nineteen. It's just funny. <laughs> it's fucking God or odd, you know. People that are connected. Mm-hmm. So, with uh, with all that being said, I mean, I'm sure that there's been a d- awful people saying things about you. Probably, um, I would only imagine. I mean, I know the media probably bashed the shit out of you too.
1: Oh yeah, I was a sociopath.
0: Right. How long have you been out of prison for?
1: Almost a year. It'll be a year next month.
0: Year next month.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. And this is your first time really speaking about this? Uh, what, yeah. In some sort of platform, I guess?
1: Yeah, platform. I've led a couple of meetings. Um, and uh, obviously, you know, not speaker meetings. So I have 15 minutes. You can't pack all that <laughs> into 15 right. minutes really easily. So I've I've talked about my crime, but I've never actually said who my victim was. Right. And then the main reason wasn't because I was ashamed. Uh, I mean, I am ashamed, but it wasn't because I didn't want to, you know, share. It was because 15 minutes isn't a lot to say that and then bring people back to the message. Right. I just didn't want anybody to get stuck on that and then just not hear the message of, by the way, you can also recover after that. Right. So um, this is, yeah, it's first time.
0: Well, you're definitely recovering. You know, so you, you have some clean time. I mean, you got, you're, you're, you're out. Are you, are you in, uh, some sort of housing or?
1: No, I was for six months mandatory for every lifer. Right. Um, and, uh, got out of it. I moved in with, um, I call her my twin. She's, uh, my best friend and she, um, we met in prison and she was my partner in the dog program. We look creepily similar. That's why we call each other twins. Mm. Um, but uh, thankfully, I was able to develop a really close friendship with her, and that's actually a big part of the reason why I came down to San Diego. Um, after I got out, um, or in getting out, and uh, I live with her now.
0: Got it. So, I mean, before we wrap this uh two hour and, and 30 minute conversation, <laughs> um, you know, what so, so, what is life like now for you?
1: My life is pretty amazing um I get to go to recovery meetings I am a student at SDSU now um I just I I was employed I had to quit my full-time job to go to school full-time but um at one point I had a job where my board of directors knew exactly who I was and what I did my the president of my of the directors was an ex-warden and um, not only did they put me in charge of 502 people's homes with keys to most of them he also asked me to go into his house while he was in the hospital to to shut his windows when it was raining like that level of of trust from people who just got to know me um even knowing what i had done like
2: isn't that amazing yeah (laughs) You know, I mean... I cried
1: walking away from his house.
2: Yeah, I mean, I've (laughs) had some situations in in my life where I'm just like, wow, man, how the tables have really turned, you know? People can trust me. I mean, I had a few incidents where I I worked um, on someone's property who was a cop, you know? And they treated me like a human being for the first time in my life, you know? And I just remember how powerful it was, you know?
1: Hmm. It's insane. Straight up. But, um, that's honestly, like, what I'm... One of the things I'm grateful for most is that now I get to be a person that people trust. And um, even knowing my past, they don't look at me any different. And they still consider me a friend. And people depend on me. Um, and they feel safe depending on me. And confiding in me. And, you know, letting me around their children. I it's insane to me sometimes. Like when I think about it, you're really choked up because I just, after the decisions I've made in my life, I wouldn't blame anybody for for staying away from me, for not wanting to get to know me because of what I've done, you know, that's, that's a danger. Uh, But the fact that people let me in their homes and they care about me and they consider, they call me their friend No, I have friends. I have friends in recovery, and um, I just, it's amazing to me, and it's so beautiful, and even the really hard moments. um, Like, I've been in the ICU since I got out. Um, You know, I've been dealing, obviously, money issues, because who doesn't worry about that? Um, Personal stuff, uh, really somebody really close to me um, relapsed. A few times, and I was there um, for part of it both times, and it's just the fact that I get to keep going and I get to keep living my life Mm. and working on myself. Like that's amazing.
0: This is what my sponsor tell. He he said this to me, and it just really, really, you know, it it really stuck, and it it resonated. But he always used to say, "They go, they get, they get high. We stay clean." They get high, we stay clean, and I'm like, it's so basic to think about. It. It's like, but it's so true. You get high, I stay clean,
3: mm-hmm.
0: and it's a, uh, it's one of those selfish things to think about. But that's the, that's the cold hard facts. I'm keeping my seat, you know, no matter what, and you should do the same. Yep. You know, I was thinking about this podcast. I mean, it's funny. A couple of things. You, when we were having a conversation over the phone, right, mm-hmm. and we, and you said, well, I don't know if my if my story would you know, jive on your show or, you know, whatever you said, you know, I don't think, I don't know. And I said, well, okay, well, explain to me a little bit. And you gave it to me. And I'm like, no, this is perfect. This is actually, this is 100% perfect. And um, so, A, appreciate you. for. I really appreciate you coming on. And and secondly, my thought was, you know, I'm going to feel sorry for this 14-year-old and, you know, and, and have like uh, not sympathy, but just... You know, but I look over at you, and it's like I see a twenty-nine-year-old woman, and that's had a fucked-up life like we all had, and had to do a lot of fucking things that we regret, mm-hmm. and 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 put ourselves into a lot of fucked-up, sticky situations. And and like I said, you over the phone, anybody that's uh, was brought up in a really shitty situation has thought those thoughts, mm-hmm. um, you know, and some of some of them have went out and done those things. Um, in your situation that did happen, you know, and, uh, you know, for you to grow from that, um, to b- rebuild the relationships with your family, um, obviously you can't take back anything that happened to your mom, but I can see the, I can hear the, you know, the, the empathy that you have in your, in your fucking voice and your heart. So I, I just know that recovery has changed you, um, and it will continuously to change you. I mean, you're 29 years old. You still have a whole life ahead of you. Yeah. And the thing of it is, I mean, you spent so much time incarcerated too, and you've been out for a year. Things have totally changed, you know, in that time frame. Yeah. Um, I I just think that uh, your story is fucking really impactful, and I hope everybody goes and reads your book. What what is broken about?
1: Um, I mean, it's it's not uh it's not factual, so it's not like my life story or anything. Um, but it is so uh, it's, a, it's f- um sci-fi fantasy it's about um the the one thing that's uh, somewhat similar is a girl uh she uh commits a crime when she's 14 years old she's part of a street gang she ends up uh killing somebody goes to prison and um the uh, it's set like really far in the future and pretty much the entire world is ruled over by this entity uh called the malvia and um she the first thing they tell you when you get locked up is that your life isn't your own. You belong to them. And that comes from just some of the frustration of being in prison, you know, for anybody who's ever been in prison, you know, you are state property. You are considered state property. They can give you a 115 for getting a sunburn for destruction of state property. And that they get to make all of the decisions that come with your life for most, for the most part of it, except for what you do internally. Right. And so it kind of, that's what it really built out of. And then it just became this way for me to be able to express quite a lot of, uh, emotional truths in my life in that medium. So it has like me going through an abusive childhood. It has prison. It has, um, like relationships with other people and learning how to have trusting relationships with other people, what it looks like not to constantly feel like you have to manipulate someone or be on the watch for somebody to manipulate you, like what that looks like. And then also, um, the number one thing about the main character that I love and that I tried to put forward is she makes mistakes. You know, she makes plenty of mistakes. Her emotions get the better of her um but the number one thing is that she's completely committed to doing the right thing even if it kills her and that's how i feel you know i i don't if it i will continue to make amends and do the right thing and make the the right choices and if it kills me it kills me um so it it's just really about her navigating that world um and the positions that she's put in when she ends up having to work for the malvia um as a, what's called a fixer so she gets sent out into the empire to fix things like you know fix situations so that way they come out for the Malvia and it's this basically this worldwide mind fuck that they do using their little fingers and hands the fixers and the wreckers and they manipulate all of the masses of the people within the empire so that way they stay where they want them which is dependent on the government basically um and um she ends up becoming one of these these hands but she very quickly becomes committed to tearing them down and um figuring out what she has to do to get rid of them because it's not right what they do to people
3: Mm.
0: love it (laughs) fucking love it (laughs) you're fucking smart fucking write a book like that jesus christ well, anyways guys go check that out on amazon the book is called broken uh charlie wolf i appreciate you so much for coming on and sharing your story i mean phew, blown out mystery man you got anything for her?
3: <laughs>
2: no it's fascinating
0: good we're done here two hours and 45 minutes you guys y'all know the fucking deal and i'm gonna tell you right now I almost just want to drop this motherfucker tomorrow. (laughs) That's what I got. (laughs) But uh, I'll be uh, patient. I got to turn this back on now since we don't have any more phone calls. (laughs) Yeah. Anyways, uh, you guys, this has been another show of the LFG 1904 show. Told you it was going to be a banger. Cliffhanger for about an hour and 30. So go ahead and... uh, Oh, this is not working now, you son of a bitch Oh, I did the wrong one <laughs> See, I told you I'm not smart <laughs> I'm going to figure it out, though Same thing, guys You all know the deal
2: Carousel, circle in the train Hit the bottom of the bottle I don't want to feel the pain But that is all I got for now I don't want to talk about this is in my head begging me to stay if i pull the trigger now then the demons go away and i know my time is coming so there ain't no time to wait so that is all i got for now i don't want to talk about the voices in my head keep telling me to choose a side it's heaven or hell like it's do or die i'm a sad boy you know better please don't make this last for